Southern Skies. Online Media. This episode of Blaine Crazy Down Under is brought to you by Oz Runways, Australia's only CASA-approved electronic flight bag for iPad. Get a free 30-day trial today at ozrunways.com. And by Jet Ride Australia. Experience the ultimate thrill-ride in our Soviet-era L-39 jet. The locations in Melbourne, Sydney and Brisbane. You can be top gun for the day. Find out more at jetride.com.au slash pcdu. And by 50 Tales of Flight, the latest ebook by Owens Up, covering everything from biplanes to Boeings. Available on Kindle and iTunes and at owensup.com. Well, g'day folks and welcome back to Plane Crazy Down Under, episode number 110, finally here of the program that looks at the world of aviation from an Australia-Pacific point of view. I'm Steve Vischer and joining me as always, welcoming back after a bit of a podcast hiatus, it's Grant McHeron. How are you, mate? Hey, not too bad, mate. How are you doing? I'm very well and uh, boy, I tell you what, uh, it has been a long time since we put a podcast out and I want to apologise to our listeners for that, but uh, we've been a little bit busy doing other things and uh, well, something had to give. <laughs> it did indeed and unfortunately with everything else we're doing, in our uh, personal lives and our day jobs and also the uh, well a couple of new things in the podcast world it's it's kind of killed our chances of getting this episode out yeah well I'll tell you what uh, we'll talk about that a bit later on in the show about some of the things we've been up to but uh, speaking of people that haven't been on the show for quite some time it's Kathy Mexted and she's joining us for this episode hi Kathy hi guys how are you going well, we're very well. Welcome back to the show. Where have you been? I don't think we've had you on the show this year. That's probably our fault, actually, and not yours. <laughs> I've been all over the countryside. We were meant to go to Japan, and we and I went to Finlay, and um, Dennis came home from Japan, and so we all came back to Woodend. But I've been up in Finlay for Term 1. Okay, so fin- um, Finlay is, Finley is a, just a little bit removed from Japan. Yeah. Why did I go to Finlay when my husband went to Japan? Yes, well, now, of course, we've now uh, in the background, of course, uh, we've, we've known about the impending uh, transfer to Japan uh, that never happened and we didn't really talk about that too much up until of course it didn't happen actually as it turns out. We actually thought we were going to have you pinged as our Japan correspondent but uh, yeah. can you just give us perhaps a bit of a brief uh, background on what was going on there because it kind of uh, works in with a book you've been writing for a while in a way. <laughs> That book is very, very ongoing and it's getting bigger and bigger. <laughs> the the Life and Strife of a Pilot's Wife, I believe it's called. <laughs> uh, I think I'm going to have to fictionalise it <laughs> <laughs> to save my marriage. <laughs> and many others by um, the sounds of it. Yeah. Like a lot of Qantas pilots, Dennis took leave of that pay and took a contract in Japan and um, things didn't quite work out as they uh, were expected to. And um, the plan was that I'd go to Finlay and hang out up there um, until he had finished training and then I would go and join him with the kids. And uh, day three of being in Finlay, having just unpacked the third last box, he rang and said, I'll be home in four days. (laughs) So um, being a good pilot's wife, I sat down on the couch and had a drink. (laughs) (laughs) Now, now but I actually a- had a lovely time in Finlay. I put the kids into my old school there and I went and sat with my dad in the nursing home, you know, every second day and um, and it was wonderful. And three weeks after coming back, he passed away. So in, wow. in retrospect, it was a really good thing to do. 
I'm very sorry to hear about your father, Kathy, and we've we've known for, about that for uh, the last few weeks, and uh, we haven't really wanted to bother you with uh, mundane things like podcasting when you've been dealing uh, with all of that. But uh, I guess when you talk about your father, if uh, listeners have been with us for a long time, um, they might have heard the first episode you came on with us, and you, you told us then about you know your dad's uh, influences on you from an early age uh, with regard to aviation. Yeah, Dad, um, he learnt to fly in the early 70s when he was in his early 40s, and um he had eight kids at that stage and so, you know, flying was probably a nice idea, <laughs> I'd imagine. Um, he was a stock and station agent and an auctioneer and um, he went into shares with another five fellows from Finlay and they had the first, I think it was the first aeroplane to be based at the Finlay Airport. We always knew when Dad's medical was up for renewal because these funny little running shoes would come out and, and shorts. We never saw Dad in shorts because <laughs> um, he was a footballer but that was before my time and uh, and he'd suddenly take a great interest in marching up and down or running up and down the airstrip or playing squash was another one. So I don't think that's changed much for a lot of pilots, does it? The medical's coming up. Oh, I've got to go and get fit. <laughs> yes, for yeah. me, it's usually yeah. when the Jenny Craig bag arrives at the house. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah so Dad, um, he, in his 20-year career, he flew just under a 1,000 hours as a private pilot and he used to fly a lot of his clients around up into central New South Wales and southern Queensland buying stock or looking at stock and he was a bit of a good time guy and he'd often disappear to the uh, every year he used to fly with some mates to the St Patrick's Day races in Broken Hill I remember that was a bit of a feature for a while and when I was about 16 he offered to pay for me to get flying to have flying lessons but I felt a bit overwhelmed at that age seeing as I had only just learnt to crash the car so <laughs> I wasn't <laughs> wasn't sure I needed to go and um, test out the aeroplane at that stage he was very encouraging of me when I learnt to fly, but he was not interfering or overbearing. And in fact, you kind of had to read between the lines a little bit with Dad. And one day I was at Finlay Airport with some friends and taking them for joy flights. And one of the boys said to me when I came down, oh, your father was here, as like a ghost had appeared, you know. And I said, Dad, well, where is he? And they said, no, he's gone home. He was standing behind the fuel bowser. He didn't want you to see him. <laughs> but he came out to see what was going on because there's his, his daughter, you know, with all these people in his aeroplane. And actually that day I took a guy up who was really scared of flying and I managed to cajole him to get into the plane and he loved it. And it was one of those first flights you know, where some you turn it around for somebody where that guy was terrified and he once we got going, I said to him, let me know as soon as we get up. If you want to come down, we'll do a circuit and come down. But he gave me the thumbs up and off we went and he had a great time. But anyway, that was Dad. So he came out, checked out what was going on and then disappeared before I got a chance to notice him. <laughs> and when we got home, he said, uh, I said, oh, can I have a beer, Dad? And he said, yeah. And he handed me the beer and before he let go, he said, as long as you promise me you'll never do whatever it was I'd done that he didn't approve of that day. <laughs> I thought, oh, righto. <laughs> so, yeah. But he loved flying. In fact, um, just when we were cleaning up the house after he died, which took about a week, um, I'm one of eight kids and about four or five of us were there going through stuff and we found a letter that he'd written to us. It was a 10-page handwritten letter and um, – it started off, he said, I guess by the time you open this, it was meant to go into a time capsule in Finlay. 
but he kept writing. He couldn't bear to finish the letter because he thought it was too much like saying goodbye. So he just kept writing, a bit like me. I just keep talking. And um, and he missed the shut-off date for the time capsule, which is actually next Christmas. And so, um, yeah, we found it all sealed up in his desk, in his drawer. And he said then, 2013, you know, he was wondering how life would be for all of us by then. It's strange addressing your children, imagining them 20 years older than what they are. And he said, I guess I'll be 85 and they'll have taken my pilot's licence off me by then. That was one of the first things, you know, that that he thought to write down. And then he said, hey, Kath, is MAU still going? So whoever out there in podcast land, aviation land, has VHMAU, give us a call. <laughs> Let what, us know where it ended up. What sort of aircraft yeah. is it, Kathy? Uh, it was a Piper Archer. There you go. So Mike Alpha uniform. Yeah. We need photos of that plane, folks. So somebody track it down for us. <laughs> Where did it go? Used to be ours. Well, they're wonderful, mm. wonderful memories, Kathy. And uh, you know, I've often talked on this program about the the influence that my my father had on me when it comes to aviation. You know, the, the many many hours we used to spend just watching aircraft come in and out, and you know, just uh, you know, dreaming about aviation and what might happen in the future and all that sort of stuff. And it's uh, it just goes to highlight what important roles our parents play in all our lives. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, definitely. And it's the same with my father-in-law and his influence on my husband. And then probably a combined effect of the whole four of us, um, both the grandfathers and Dennis and I, um, on our son. So, yeah, you've got to... You got to pull it up if you're gonna <laughs> if you want to put a stop to it. <laughs> Takes a bit of hauling, you know, yeah. like trying to stop a freight train. <laughs> Not many things that are more fun, are there? Absolutely. <laughs> and I tell you what, Grant. Just speaking of that, uh, you had no chance, did you? Because your father was in the uh, Kiwi Air Force. That's right, mate. That's right. I grew up with him uh, being in the Orions. He had been in the Sunderlands before I came along, and then was in the Orions. Uh, he did get out at a relatively young age, but the interest in aviation was still in there. So uh, yeah, pretty much doomed. And on a side note, just while you were chatting there, I did a quick look up and uh, Mike Alpha Uniform is a 78 Piper PA-28-181, currently uh, registered to a gentleman in South Australia. Oh, there we go. Well, oh, hopefully go. hopefully he's a listener to the show. We'd love a photo. I'm sure we'd, I'm sure Kathy would love a photo of that aircraft. <laughs> and I can send him one of me in my, <laughs> my best 1980s outfit, standing <laughs> on the wing with my dad and mum. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, uh, that's, that's a really uh, great way to, to kick off the program and some great memories there and uh, let's have a look at what's coming what else is coming up in the program uh, a bit later in fact in just a few minutes we're going to be chatting with Crescia Ballantyne she's the publications manager for AOPA Australia we recorded that interview uh, a few weeks ago now and uh, that was a, a lot of fun we've got uh, Michael Lee coming up he's going to take us out to Echuca as we talked about in the last episode uh, for the uh, Antique Aircraft Association's uh, annual fly-in that they had up there and he's uh, put a great package together there so we'll look forward to that and after that Grant and Kathy are going to tell us about their recent hot air balloon activities and that's right, that's Grant and Kathy. What have you guys been up to while I wasn't uh, paying attention, I wonder? Oh, well, you know, early morning, you were asleep. Doopy-doopy-doo. Yeah, of course, it always is. Young around-the-world solo adventurer Ryan Campbell has uh, set off on his journey to set the world record to become the youngest person to fly solo around the world, and I caught up with him just a couple of days before he launched just to see how things were going, and, uh, boy, he sounded really excited and keen to get going. We also announced the winners of our 50 Tales of Flight ebook giveaway from the last show, thanks to Owen's Up, and uh, Owen's, oh, got a, Owen's got did another... I to that? No, you didn't, Kathy. I don't think you did. Can you put me in? Well, there's good news. We've got another uh, five copies to give away in uh, in this episode, so we'll, oh, we'll be playing another one of uh, Owen's really cryptic questions coming up. We've got some listener mail and some shout-outs, as always. So another busy show, so let's get down to business, guys. So uh, let's have a listen to this fantastic interview with Cresha Ballantyne. 
And it's a great pleasure to welcome to the show the publications <laughs> editor at AOPA Australia. It's Crescia Ballantyne. Hi there, Crescia. Hello. And uh, how's the weather up there in Sydney? I believe you're uh, just one bit away from uh, swimming on, on the deck there at your house. It's absolutely belting down. It's truth. Well, that's no good. It's no good. And half of my house has lost its power, so I'm, a, I'm half in the dark. Well, I'm glad the uh, one side of your house that's powering your iPad is working because we've been <laughs> uh, we've been working for a while to get a time to do this interview. So I'm glad that we finally all uh, coordinated and uh, got in the one place at the one time. We most certainly have. It's been a while, hasn't it, in uh, the making? Yeah. Now, Crucia, we uh, we bumped into you down at Avalon and uh, we, had, we had some great chats about uh, some of the many great things that AOPA Australia is doing. Uh, and we also have been keeping up to date with all of the uh, rather interesting things you've been doing since Avalon, uh, including uh, wing walking. So we'll have a bit of a talk about that very shortly. But before we do, perhaps you could uh, tell us what your role is there at uh, AOPA Australia. So um, I'm the new publications editor, which means I cover the magazine and the website, the Facebook page and the members magazine and any media that needs to be um, mediated, <laughs> put out. <laughs> so um, yeah, just anything to do with publications or media, really. Okay, and of course, uh, AOPA Australia's uh, magazine, of course, is Australian Pilot. That's correct. And you've interviewed us for that. When's our article coming out? Not that I'm, you know, not that I'm being precious about this, of course. <laughs> very, very soon. What I want to do is I, I want to capture you more in person again. So I really, really wanted to see Grant at work with the balloons. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> you, you wanted to catch Grant. And maybe his... even you at work with the trains. Oh, yes. Well, yes, I work very hard on the train, so yes. I knew that. I knew that. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So I thought I'd come down and stalk you guys for a bit, if that's all right. Oh, that's okay. We're always up for Don't being go stalked. Don't Cranbourne. <laughs> Why not? Cranbourne, Chris. <laughs> Why not, Kathy? Like, I went there and I've never been back. Okay, well, I'll take that from you. Yeah, look, we haven't had a murder here since last April. I don't know what you're worried about. <laughs> Be at least a week. <laughs> Tell me, Crucia, when you're, uh, you're editing and putting the uh, magazine together, just how difficult is it dealing with Kathy Mexted? I, I hear she's a very difficult uh, writer to deal with. Do you know, she's actually my most professional writer on the entire team. She is the most delightful person to work with. And she has the negatives. She's professional. She's and she's amazing to edit. She's no work at all. I wish everyone were like Kathy. Boy, she's definitely got some evidence on you, hasn't she? <laughs> there's a stunned silence there in the background. Well, there you go, Kathy. There's a big rap. I think she fell off her internet. <laughs> I think she fell off her chair. <laughs> I'm not quite sure how to respond to that. It's very nice to hear. It's very true, and I wouldn't say it otherwise. Yes, well, that's the quietest Kathy's ever been on any part of any recording. So, now, Crucia, you've got your own blog as well, which is called Girl with a Stick, and we might uh, talk about that a bit. That details, uh, I guess, uh, you know, the personal side from your point of view of your uh, flying exploits. But uh, can you tell us a bit about uh, how you got into aviation in the first place? Do you know it was the strangest thing because I've got no aviators at all in my family. It's almost like I got infected by some sort of bug. Uh, a friend bought me a TIFF, and that was it. Was just love at first flight, and that was that. Uh, it was really, really difficult to learn to fly as well because I'm, you know, creative and um, I wouldn't have known a carburetor if it had knocked on my front door. I had yeah. nothing to do with machinery in my life ever. Um, and so it was a really, really, really difficult thing. I cried more over that little aeroplane than I have over any man in my life. It was a really, really difficult path, but I stuck at it and I'm really glad I did because it does get easier uh, after you get over the first few hurdles, after you learn to land, I think. Yeah, that's um, always a tricky thing. Thing, that one and very important <laughs> very very important and the first time you go solo it's then you realize that you've knowingly taken your life into your hands <laughs> the first time for some people and if you don't land that airplane you will die 
<laughs> yes. It's a frightening reality check when you're up there. I sang through my, through my whole first solo. I sang, come fly with me. But, and my legs were shaking and it was just, it was frightful. Did you know that the first solo was coming or did the instructor spring it on you? I knew it was coming. My instructor said, bring your license and come at six in the morning. And then when um, he put me in with the, uh, the CFI to see if I was ready to go, I grabbed hold of his legs and wouldn't let him get out of the aircraft <laughs> at all. And he was like... He's a German fellow. He's like, Krisha, we have babied you enough. And, and he just got out and I couldn't turn around. So I just had to go for it. It was really scary. But, you know, just one of those things you never forget. I've spoken to airline captains with 12, 20,000 hours and they've never, ever forgotten their first solo. Yes, I've, yep. uh, I've often said that on this show. Everybody remembers theirs. I, I can remember mine and uh, I can even remember the date. Actually, mine was on April Fool's Day in 1990. I thought <laughs> the instructor right. was joking. <laughs> You're never yeah. What did you solo in? I went in a Cessna 152, November Alpha Kilo. <laughs> you never forget the call sign, do you? No, never forget nope. it. And no. it's interesting, friends of ours in the States are doing a, a movie called A Pilot Story. You can find it at apilotstory.com. They're uh, trying to get that out. And uh, that's following on that same core concept. Everyone has a first solo. They and do. that's how they started off. And you've got... What a great uh, idea. Yeah, you've got, you've got Thunderbird pilots, uh, the first lady to fly for the Thunderbirds. You've got uh, Colonel Kittinger, the gentleman who held the uh, altitude record for uh, ballooning and skydiving until uh, Felix Baumgartner just uh, won it Recent. recently. Yep. Yeah. Uh, so all sorts of people in there, some amazing folks and some really interesting content and great video. Um, the little snippets I've seen are absolutely fantastic. And it's all the same thing. I mean, you know, it's it's uh, whether you're flying a balloon, a glider, a, a, an ultralight or just whatever it happens to be, you always do remember that first solo. And it's doesn't matter how many times you told it. It's amazing that, oh, my God, I'm here on my own. And, wow, doesn't this thing fly brilliantly with it just me? <laughs> it is amazing. And I look at these people, you know, and they've got loads of hours and they seem like they were born flying. And you have to remember that they weren't. You know, that everybody was a beginner at one point and that, you know, everybody struggled with it. And I think that helped me heaps when I was going through the really, really difficult times. And the one thing I think was really difficult, too, is I didn't have any mentors. Nobody looked after me. So I always try and look after people now who are flying because I know how difficult it is, how terrifying. How many choices there are that you don't get informed about. So you're sort of fumbling along this path until you find your own way. Yeah, I, I, I know think what you it's mean. Very, very important to do that. And it's, it's very important to encourage people to get into flying because there's not that many people doing it these days and that's something that we all have to uh, concentrate on uh, re, you know reversing absolutely and i've been writing about that a lot why are we so unappealing as a you know even as a hobby when you think about what people up here spend on boats or even yes. golf and golfing holidays it's really strange that so few people learn to fly I'm really curious to find out why well one thing is we're finding out how you got into flying. There's quite an accent there, Ms. Cretia. Uh, where are you from? No, no, it's not me who has the accent I want to point out. Uh, yes, you're in a minority within this country, so we've got to talk about accents here. I'm, I'm originally, originally from Wales a long time ago, but I've been out here about 20 years. Okay, so it was okay. out here that you did your flying? You did all your flying? Oh, yeah, all of my flying out here. I, I didn't start until 2008. So I'm a fairly recent convert. Okay, where did you learn? Uh, Hoxton Park at first until they closed it down there over at Camden. Now I'm at yep. Bankstown. Yep, they're, they're the only choices in Sydney. We don't have the uh, options that you have down there in Victoria. No, you keep closing them. I know. <laughs> keep building factories and housing estates. 
Yeah, well, I mean, Camden's uh, the other option, but... Yeah, no, I did, ca- I did Camden for ages, but the commute was just so yes. long. It is in the country. I live in North and it's in the South, and it would take me two hours, two and a half hours to get there. And then, yeah. you know, the, the whole torture of flying. And I had some fairly torturous instructors, especially <laughs> in my early days. Um, <laughs> it's, it's good to be closer. And our office at AOPA is at Bankstown Airport, so I'm able to combine flying and work sometimes in the same day. Oh, fantastic. Oh, oh, it's a hard life. <laughs> I need to get a job rotten, there. isn't it? Rotten, I know. I sit there under the circuit all day thinking, oh, i just got to wait till three o'clock and I'm off. <laughs> or like, oh, it's not a rainy day, I'm going flying and I'll work on this on a rainy day. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, it's all work, isn't it? Oh, definitely. You've got to keep current or you've got nothing to write about. <laughs> so, Krisha, is um, being with AOPA, is that like being with the Air Force so they give you a flying allowance? No, sadly oh, they, they do, do not. Come on, they do. No, no, I'm afraid. I wish that were true, Cathy. No, look, they they'll pay my expenses if I want to do something that involves going somewhere. But if it if it involves taking a a, a higher aircraft, they won't cover that. They'll cover okay. a portion of it. But uh, that's only fair because rental is so expensive. And you're looking at I don't know two sixty, two eighty an hour to rent so you know i I can't expect uh, the organization to pay for that and all of the directors own their own aircraft so um you know whenever they go on aopa business they um they use their own aircraft and they don't just leave the keys in the ashtray for you when they come back i cannot believe that not one of them has offered (laughs) (laughs) absolutely appalling goodness knows i've tried hard enough (laughs) you'll have to marry one of them love and change change the rules So, uh, so Chris, you said you started flying in 2008. So, as we sit yeah. here in uh, 2013, uh, what ratings do you hold currently? Oh, not not a lot, really. Um, would have got tailwheel endorsement, which was like dancing with the devil. It was so difficult. <laughs> um, constant speed unit. Ah, that's about it. Fixed wings. Yep. That's about it. It's not very exciting. And about 550 hours. Okay, and that's, that's pretty exciting. Yeah, and private, uh, or private or commercial or private. I've done all the exams and most of the um, navs. I just haven't actually got round to sitting the test. And now, as I scroll down your blog here a few pages, Crescia, I noticed that I mean everybody has a penchant for a particular aircraft type. Yours, I would assume, are Bonanzas. Yes, it is. I'm a Bonanza stalker. Yes, <laughs> I get to ride in a lot of them, but I just can never, ever, ever afford to own one. I think you've got a Bonanza, have you not? <laughs> I've got access to a Bonanza. Right, well, that's good enough. So you've got the keys in the ashtray. <laughs> I got the keys in the ashtray if I need them. <laughs> trouble is, the trouble is that the ashtray is about a thousand miles from where the plane is. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, not a thousand miles towards me by any chance, is it? <laughs> I can meet you halfway. The airplane is Finley. It's for sale, Oh, I wish. It's not the it's not the cost of um of purchasing one. It's the cost of running one. Yes. Ah, it doesn't cost anything. <laughs> you married to a lamey. Give it. Yeah, he is doing a lamey exam <laughs> soon, <Yeah>. actually. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Almost. Yeah. Well, I'm married to a psychologist, so I don't think I'm going to get any mechanical help with an airplane. <laughs> And he'll recognise all your cunning ploys to try and get the allowance for it. I have whispered bonanza in his ear every night since 2008 (laughs) and it still hasn't worked. How many bonanzas have you been in? Oh, stacks. Stacks. How did you you manage that? 
I joined the Australian Cancer Society. Well, they got sick of me pestering them, so they made me a member, <laughs> even though I don't have a bonanza. Right. And now I just follow them around whenever they go anywhere. So you're <laughs> and, a social and they, member. They're all very kind. I am a social member, yeah. Now, as I mentioned, Krisha, we bumped into you at Avalon. Now, what were your impressions of Avalon this year? Mine was that it was a much smaller event than in previous years. It was smaller, definitely, but I think it benefited from that. It felt enthusiastic. I got to interview quite a lot of the general public on my quest to see why uh, more people don't fly. And um, I just thought that they all seemed really, really enthusiastic about the whole event. I thought it was really well organised. What was the general consensus that you got about why people don't fly? I mean, obviously, it's an event for the public to bring them down. Yeah, Yeah. really varied it was. Um, Some people thought it was uh, a lot harder than it is. A lot of people thought it was a lot more expensive, even though it is expensive it's not prohibitively so in fact it's um you know if you pace it out it's affordable it's possible and um i think a lot of, somebody thought that you couldn't fly if you wore glasses or contact lenses uh, so it's quite a, a mixed varied um opinions out there um it's very strange because uh, a lot of people just didn't think it was within their realm that's that's for other people but not for me and they didn't realize you know anyone could learn to fly a lot of people thought that you could only fly if you were on your way to the airlines as well I think that we suffer from a lack of publicity on the hobby um sector of our industry yeah which is probably also contributing to why people don't really think too much about well well yeah shut down an airport what the heck not that yeah. many people flying there's so many airports who cares Exactly. Yeah. No, that's probably a big part of it. And I really want to change that. We're giving away a bunch of um, trial introductory flights over the next couple of years at AOPA. And I'm trying to get them out there as far as I can to various groups of people to try and show them just how easy it is to learn to fly. Have they been um, given out yet? No, they're getting drawn next week after our seminar, um, as as well as the scholarships. And then we're going to go into a second round because Air Services gave us uh, quite a lot to get through. So That's great. Well, it's fantastic. Air Services are brilliant. They've uh, really been supportive and for us and also for the Australian Women's Pilots Association in terms of giving out scholarships. So we're doing all we can to try and get people, you know, in the seat to see what it's like and hope that they get bitten in the same way that I did. Well, I mean, that's that's the thing. We need more pilots because with more pilots, they're sharing more of the load. Air services, of course, will love that because there's more people paying fees. Uh, the, the manufacturers would love it because there's more people buying their aircraft. So it's it's like a friend of ours, uh, Jack, over at the uh, the Uncontrolled Airspace podcast. He's saying, you know, let's get a consortium of uh, manufacturers together. It's worth their interest to chip in a few few hundred thousand to give scholarships to uh, get more people flying. So what people a great actually- idea. That's a great idea. And it costs, you know, it costs so little to get people started. Yeah, and they could, I mean, sure, they may turn around and buy an ultralight, may not buy your aircraft, but they could level up eventually. And next thing you know, they're buying a damn citation or something. Absolutely. You know? And, you know, people are surprisingly loyal to the brands as well. Yes. You know, you start in a Cessna and you carry on all the way up to the, you know, citation. I think people can be, I mean, I'm loyal to Beechcraft. I started in a Beechcraft skipper, you know, so maybe that's got something to do with it. What's it like being editor of Australian Pilot? Was it a big step up? It was a huge step up and a re- I hit the ground running, really. It was a very unexpected um, step up and uh, I mean, it's been nothing but delightful and the board have been amazingly supportive, but um, it was a bit of a step up, um, but I've really, really, really enjoyed it and, and all our readers have been really supportive and uh, I'm considered 
young for AOPA in terms of editors, even though I'm not young at all. Um, and they've all made a bit of a fuss about, you know, the new young lady. It's been very, um, they've been very accepting. That's great. So so um, how did you get to the point we are now in terms of, we've talked about getting to where you are with flying, but that was one of the other factors was how did you get to here with your uh, work background? I trained as a journalist and then left the industry after um, having the frightful experience of working on women's magazines. Uh-oh. Uh-uh. <laughs> um, and then I set up my own bookshop. And then when I learned to fly, I started submitting to um, Australian Pilot. And then when Brian Big, the editor of Australian Pilot at the time, started, uh, he got taken on by the RA Oz magazine, Sport Pilot. He took yep. me with him as the deputy editor. So I worked there alongside him there learning all the ropes. And that's a monthly. So you really have to step up with monthly. And, um, and then I think when the two jobs concurrently got too much for him he made a decision to um to stay over there because that's such a big magazine and so I said I'll take up Australian pilot and he'd been at pilot for nearly five years so I think he was ready for a change now one of the rolling us all back to Avalon which yeah while it was a bit smaller and it was a bit of a shame with the weather and people couldn't really fly in uh we it was a lot of fun and there was a um a really interesting bunch of people from sort of your way some uh, rather svelte young, young ladies and a couple oh, of were they fun gorgeous. guys yeah yeah and really interesting <laughs> outfits standing on top yeah. of the wing of biplanes <laughs> <laughs> and that's, of course, the uh, the Breitling Wingwalker team. They were amazing. I thought it was a joke when they asked me if I wanted to do a wingwalk. I really didn't think for a minute that they'd just let anyone get on the wing. I didn't. I just thought, there's just no way they're going to let an overweight, middle-aged woman stand on a wing. But <laughs> they do. They do. That goes to show how safe it is. There you go. Well, I didn't bother asking because I knew that the wing would probably buckle under me. But um... uh, I, I note with interest they didn't ask me, Grant. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I, they would have. I could have done wing walking on the top of a you know DC ten perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's not beyond question. I'll interview you if you do that. Yes. All right. Then. Well, it was what about a month after Avalon or so? The, that yeah, it was just after Avalon. It was in March sometime, and I tried really hard not to think about it because I'm terrified of heights like a lot of pilots a lot of pilots who are really scared of heights it's not an uncommon thing and um, you know I think as well we're all we like to be in control so standing on the wing while someone else is flying at a height is was a really terrifying thought and the thought was actually much scarier than the reality which was loads of fun sounds I'm like really it glad i did it i really am and the hardest part was actually climbing up to the top of the steerman well, yeah well tell us about some of the preparation they did before you went up i guess there would have been a safety briefing there was a safety briefing which they give you on the wing but i got to interview the wing walker and the pilot first mm -hmm. so i asked them you know a billion questions about what it was like and what to expect and you know what kind of turns he'd be doing and you know whether there'd be any aerobatics involved which thankfully there weren't and oh. um, that's thing no but joel husky from red baron yes. did aerobatics did you see that yeah he had the gopro on his wrist it was and hilarious too it was amazing we put it on our website for a while because uh that's hats off for daring that is that's really incredible yeah. It doesn't. It doesn't surprise me at all. Now that Joel Haskey went up and did it. <laughs> no, yeah. nor I. And he wasn't even scared at all. I interviewed him afterwards, and he said, "No, he was fine." Yeah, he was he too busy laughing. Inside, 
Yeah, the adrenaline high lasted three days for me. Yes. <laughs> well, let's talk about that. Let's talk about Nana. You've you've climbed up on the wing. You said that was challenging, but they strap you in. Um, you do. How much do, movement have you got once you're strapped in there? I guess you can swing your arms around, and that'd be about it. Yeah. Look, it's it's a funny thing. It's actually equipped for a certain height, and luckily for me, I was about the same height as the wing walkers. Sadly, I wasn't the same weight as the wing walkers. <laughs> They're all tiny. But the gentleman who went after me was really tall, and he looked very uncomfortable comfortable having to sort of squat on the little seat but it fitted me really well so I was actually quite comfortable and then once I got onto the wing I felt like it was such an honor to be on top of such a beautiful um, antique aircraft and I just enjoyed you know the taxiing was really good fun and I just thought once we took off you didn't you didn't you didn't get a chance to think about it because the wind's just howling in your face and you're you're actually strapped to the rig by the force of the wind so even if all the harnesses fell off you'd they'll probably be pinned in really securely, <laughs> right. which is a nice thought. And it's you, the ultimate bug mashing, isn't it? Uh, yeah, everybody said keep your mouth shut. Let's see if we can do that for 10 whole minutes. So now you, I note here on your blog you said that uh, you were so nervous it reminded you of uh, the nerves you had before your first solo. Mm, it was it was the, the, the thought of it and the fact that Lara Bingle did it before and it was all over the newspapers and I, I was frightened they'd make me wear the lycra which was a really horrible thought in itself that I'd have to get into one of those lycra suits but they gave me one of those really unflattering but like Teletubby type um, (laughs) flight suits so that was okay but uh, no Lara Bingle did it with such grace and um, dignity that I just thought I'm never going to be able to do it like that but you know I guess there are lots of different ways of standing on a wing I know a lot of people who have been uh, crazy enough to go bungee jumping and I, I don't know I that would it, never do that well I don't know that I'd do it either but everyone I talk to I guess it's the same for skydivers I don't think I'd do it either but you know people say once you get over it and you've done it the sense of achievement that you've gotten through that barrier and you, you've done that sort of thing is you know really significant and, uh, you know, a real moment for everybody. And I wonder if uh, doing this was a similar sort of experience. Uh, I I don't think I'd be rushing to do it again. I think it's one of those things you tick off and you say, I'm really glad I did it, but I wouldn't, you know, I I think once is enough. And I've also heard people say that about um, bungee jumping and jumping out of aircraft. If you'd have asked me two days after, I would have said I would have done it every single day for the rest of my life because the high was so incredible. Yeah, it's, uh, I I do recall, I mean, not that I was wing walking or anything, but, uh, when I went up and flew with Joel a few years ago, the high after doing all the aerobatics oh, and, and going hard, we went really hardcore. It was fantastic. And yeah, I was buzzing for days. So I, I could know, imagine that you would, be, you would be like right out there buzzing with that one. You can see why people get addicted to adrenaline. Now, uh, Krisha, while you're up there, did you do any of the moves? I mean, the wing, the the actual bridling wing walker girls, they do all these fancy moves. Did you did you bust <laughs> a move while you were up there? Do you know what? I managed to raise my arm when we were on base, and that was about it. And it wasn't very elegant. There is a photograph of it. It doesn't look particularly elegant, but the. The Brayton girls are amazing because the force that they have to work against, and they're only tiny, um, means they have to be really, really strong and really well trained. Um, and that rig that I was attached to swivels so they can go upside down. So mid-flight, they have to take some sort of pin out or move some sort of contraption to get that going against the power of the wind. So what they do is, it, once you get up there, you realize what they do is completely incredible. And they climb in and out of the 
cockpit off the wing and on the wing as well in flight. Yeah, they're with the, they have the safety carabiner they hook on to their rig and, and that goes up a wire as they transition up the top and then they hook on to the, the oh, it's, uh, they, they stepped it through for us and it's, yeah. it is quite impressive how they do it. But yeah, they look tiny and you'd think that, you know, if someone fell on them, they'd be broken. But no, I think if someone fell on them, they'd find themselves going back the other way very quickly. They're really, yeah, they're really strong. They keep really, really fit. Yes. And um, I talked to them about that and they have to keep their weight down and, and their, their muscles up. And it's a, you know, it's a demanding job and they don't take it lightly. And they all feel so privileged. I mean, I know you guys had a chance to talk to them down at Avalon and they all gave a sense of, of privilege and awe uh, uh, regarding their jobs. I found it interesting that one of them, I think her name was Freya, I think was her name. And yep. she said words, words to the effect that, you know, when we asked, how did you get into it? Oh, I've always wanted to do it. And, and I, I sort of said, you've always wanted to walk around in the wing of an aircraft and I when I listened back to that I, I thought I sounded rather condescending I didn't mean it that way but I just wonder how how you could what always be wanting to thing, yeah, yeah. It, there was a tradition of it in um, air shows in the UK where yep. you'd go and get formation you know uh, wing walkers and I, I think one of the girls was telling me she got taken to air shows as a child by her father and she'd just look at it with absolute awe and amazement and think I'd love that to be me and it was just one of those cases where she applied and it was her and it Interesting yeah. quote here at the end of your uh, your, your uh, piece about the flight is that somebody told you that there's been more people up in space than those that have walked on a wing, and you you said you were going to check that. Did you check that fact out? And no, is it I true? I didn't want to. I liked that fact so much. <laughs> I thought if I checked it and it turned out not to be true, then uh, I'd be devastated. So I'm just gonna I'm just gonna be unjournalistic for one uh, one time and and just say that's the truth. Yeah, fair <laughs> enough. Works for me. Works for me. <laughs> Works for me too. I'll tell you, you're a braver person than me, Crash. That's all I can say. I think you would have done it given the chance. I'll go for another jet ride. I think that was that was good enough for me. <laughs> if they had have right, said, you'd do it, wouldn't you? Oh, well, in a heart. Yeah, to the yeah. wing of the jet, Steve. Would you go up and do that? Stretch to the wing of a jet. <laughs> as long as it only taxied around on the runway, I'd do it. <laughs> Strap me to the hard point, and I'll point the way home. Yeah. <laughs> uh, would you do it, Kathy? Oh, I don't think I want to answer that. She didn't. <laughs> Kathy, Kathy won't answer that because if she says yes, she knows we'll send her off on assignment to do it. Uh-huh. <laughs> Quite possibly. Yeah, I think possibly I would. I thought in the beginning I never would, but uh, perhaps, yes, okay, yeah, I would, I think. Kathy, Grant, Grant, you've got that business card, haven't you? Make the call. Now, you're in AOPA. There's a lot of change happening in AOPA at the moment is, is how it seems because uh, it seems like the, the modern AOPA is a bit different from how it used to be. It certainly is. It really is. And it, like anything, it had to change. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of um, in-house fighting in the past. And we're really, really keen to move away from that. It's been a long time. We've been stable through three presidents now, Cole Rogers and um, Philip Reese and now Andrew Anderson, who's wonderful. He's so forward thinking and enthusiastic and optimistic. And I think that um, it's just time to look at the industry with a with a wider approach than previous uh, board members did where it got quite uh, focused on on very small things and I think um, change was necessary a lot of uh, people left over the difficult time and a lot of them are just coming back to us now 
So um, people have long memories. And Andrew wrote the, uh, a letter, an open letter to everybody in GA to explain our stance and our new approach and to apologize for the past and say, let's put that behind us now and uh, look to the future. Yeah, I wanted to mention that letter because you've, you've put it on your blog, but it's also here. Grant, we'll put a link to the show notes to that letter uh, on the AIPO Australia website. Mm. And uh, he's outlining some of the things. I mean, we always have to look forward, don't we? I mean, it's pointless looking backwards. It, it really, it, really is. And, and that's the first thing Andrew wanted to do was to say, okay, yes, we've had a past. Yes, we own and acknowledge that, but let's leave it behind now. Yeah, you need to learn from the past, but not keep dwelling on it and rehashing it. exactly it. it. We've learned what we don't want from, from mistakes that have been made. And, you know, those were different times, very different times. And, you know, we've had to change because the industry has changed. The needs of the people have changed. We've also got the situation where AOPA covers pilots. So as a balloon pilot, I'm a member yes. of AOPA. As you, a, that's uh, right. But we, we haven't made that clear enough to people. I don't think that we're the only umbrella under which GA sits all of GA, a glider pilot or even a, you know, even an ultralight pilot, even though they, you know, RA covers a lot of their needs. We cover a lot of their needs in terms of airports and insurance or all sorts of things, advice. And our magazine's pretty good too. <laughs> well, one of the important things that, uh, and, and I've, I've talked about this from time to time and, and particularly from my experience living in the United States, their lobby groups, their alphabet groups as they're known, are very, yes. very effective at, at lobbying different arms of government. And, they uh, really are. I, I I see here in the in the letter that uh, Andrew's written that uh, he's talking about uh, AOPA wanting to play a more proactive role in this regard. So yeah, absolutely. Well, Andrew is really involved on many uh, many boards. He sits on the Astra, the Airspace Committee, strategic uh, group uh, on their working groups, and he's the only person who represents general aviation on that whole group. He, he sits alongside Virgin and CASA and Air Services and the ATSB and the Department of Transport, and he's there for us to make sure that when the air check when the air changes come when the performance based navigation comes in that we are um that we are recognized as important too especially the fr pilots how does aopa feel these days about the big chestnut there of user fees and and the and what it costs just to bring your aircraft around and, and get into an airport these days it's uh, once again yeah, and i talk about this a lot because yeah, <laughs> i learned to fly in the states where there very, aren't any very concerned about very very concerned about and we fight it all the time we're constantly in discussion with casa with their service with the Bureau of Met. Um, every single paper that gets written gets read by one of our board members and responded to. And we put it out on our website for our members to see and respond to too before we take it back to CASA or whomever is relevant. So, you know, I think you have to deal with every situation individually. And do you find that government is, is receptive to, you know, your representations? Do you? Yes. We've had some enormous success with CASA over the last few years. I think that because the current board members do attend so many of the working groups and um, committees that they've started to um, have a real presence in the industry so that uh, they you know, they sit down and they talk on a on a, a person-to-person level with people from all sorts of departments. And I think for the departments, you know, we had such a bad reputation, say, 20 years ago as CASA bashers that and I'm sorry even to use that term because it's so ugly that, you know, it's taken a long time for people to realise that we all need to work together because we're all in the same industry, which is why I urge people to get involved and to to write in and, and to say what they think. 
and to get involved, to join groups and and to write letters. And I was recently up in Brisbane uh, for a a meeting called by a group of uh, maintenance providers who were very upset with the way CASA was dealing with uh, the regulation changes in their area. And there was a very lively conversation, but four CASA members turned up, including Mr. McCormick, the CEO himself. And, you know, they got on down there and talked about everything right down to the everyday personal situations that people have to put up with and it was a was a really heartening thing to see the 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 regulator and the every and the people sitting down together and even though they didn't necessarily come up with the solutions people were heard and that that empowers them it does help uh, because it also ensures that uh, many times when legislation is being drafted it seems like it's for the big airlines the regionals Mm. but Mm. nothing Mm. below or maybe the odd one or two large uh, charter groups but everyone else uh, there's there's a lot of legislation out there that you look at it and go hang on it's going to cost us three people for uh, two aircraft just to maintain all the legislation and compliance and paperwork and everything that's very true and, and a lot of people struggle under that. And that's why when the papers are released, it's important to read them and react to them because, you know, we've had we've had quite a lot of success in the last four, ooh, four to eight years in making actual changes in those papers. For yeah. instance, when they brought in um, the the changes for ADSB, they put VFR and IFR um, aircraft in the same group and said everyone has to be changed by I think it's 2016. Forgive me for not knowing the actual dates. And uh, AOPA said that's not good enough. VFR aircraft need a lot longer. There's a huge fleet of people who um, are just flying VFR by day and not flying through much controlled airspace. And yeah. uh, CASA took that on board, and you know the time for VFR fitment is quite far into the future. Well, I mean, some of the good things that have come through from uh, from the private side of things is the revised Class 2 medical. I mean, the, the worst part about that was it came through just after I'd paid for my Class 2 medical. Oh, how annoying for you. <laughs> so annoying. On the other hand, it worked. The t- it was timing very good for me. I got one. <laughs> well done. <laughs> but, yeah. Uh, yeah, so there's that kind of thing, the micro damp for small businesses, small AOC holders. Uh, we have two AOCs in the ballooning organization I'm involved in, and one does the full-blown drug and alcohol management program, which I run, and mm-hmm. the other one, we've got them in the micro system. Yep. Where, where and is that working for you? Yeah, well, it's it's less than 10, um, as I right. call them, yep. safe, safety-sensitive safety aviation. Sensitive. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that, that works out reasonably well on that side. So it balances out pretty nicely because there were some problems. If you had two AOCs, you couldn't share damp information. You know, it was all that kind of stuff. Yeah. But, yeah. but, you know, yeah. so there's lots of good stuff going on, and it's great to hear that uh, is right in the heart of it. It really uh, is. And remaining positive and optimistic, too, about the future. It's very important because if we give the message that we think everything is doomed, then who's going to want to join forces? It's not how we feel at all. Even if there are fewer people flying, they still have the same rights to fly. Yep. They certainly should still have the same rights to fly. So, Krisha, the general thrust of what we're talking about here, and particularly in the open letter uh, to uh, General Aviation in Australia, is that uh, AOPA needs more members. And uh, can you tell us a bit about membership? How much does it cost? How would people do it? And uh, you know, apart from being part of the group and 
contributing to it, there are some other uh, special benefits that are involved in being an AOPA Australia member. Absolutely. At the moment, we're working on a, a, a new tiered system, which isn't finalised, so I can't announce it. But um, we have an affiliate programme. So if you're an affiliate of a flying school or a group, then you can join for a reduced rate of 107, I think it is. We're working on a couple of things, as I said, in the pipeline. Also, we've been putting on uh, safety seminars throughout the country. And at the moment, we're running a deal that if you join or rejoin on the day, you can do so for $80. So um, we're realizing that in modern times, people need a lot of choices. People don't necessarily just tick one box or fit in one category. So we're working on making our membership a lot more flexible for people. And obviously, as a member, you get access to our website and a members only section of our website. You get a regular monthly newsletter, plus our magazine, uh, plus uh, notices about our safety seminars and uh, anything that we do, any social events that we have, you get an invite to, etc. And we keep you up to date. We, You can contact us anytime with questions. And if you have a case, we don't take on individual cases, but we do divert you to the appropriate department should you need any help. Well, it's, it's certainly well worth doing. And uh, for all aviators here, and we've got a large number of pilots that listen to our program. So I would encourage all of them. Uh, once again, we'll put a link in the show notes to this, oh, o- this open much. letter and uh, just have a read there of what uh, of what Andrew has to say. And I, I think it makes a lot of sense. And uh, as he says there, he uh, he left Iopa himself and has come back. He did. He did. And it's a really heartfelt letter. It's purely, genuinely Andrew. He, he speaks as he feels and, 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 and the entire board agree with him. We're all behind him. We think it's, you know, we think it's, it, it's a letter that re- reflects very much how we all feel at the moment. Well, Krisha, it's been a delight to have you here on the program. I guess uh, speaking about uh, keeping people in the loop about what's happening with AOP, do you think we could twist your arm to uh, drop into the show a few times a year and let our uh, listeners uh, know what's going on there? Absolutely, that would be my pleasure. Krisha Ballantyne, of course, is the publications editor at AOPA Australia. You can find out more about them at aopa.com.au and if you'd like to have a look at uh, Krisha's rather entertaining blog, you can find that at girlwithastick.blogspot.com.au. Krisha, thanks very much and we'll talk to you again a bit later in the year. Thank you so much for having me. Good night. Do you have the need, the need for speed? Jetride Australia is the country's premier fighter experience and the perfect gift for every budding Top Gun. From mild to wild, Jetride tailors each flight individually to give you the mind-blowing ride of your life. To make the dream a reality, check out jetride.com.au slash PCDU or Aussies can call 1300 554 876. Jetride. Forget the rest, fly with the best. Plan your flight. Fly your plan with Oz Runways. Oz Runways turns any iPad or iPhone into a full-featured moving map GPS complete with all the official Australian aviation charts. Oz Runways makes the task of creating and submitting a flight plan a breeze and can be a great tool for improving situational awareness en route. Annual subscriptions start at only $74.99, so get your copy today. For your free one-month trial, search for Oz Runways EFB in the iTunes store or visit ozrunways.com. Oz Runways. Know where you're going. Aviation media has long been the domain of the newspapers and magazines. Well, not anymore. I'm Steve Fisher. And I'm Grant McCarran, and we're bringing aviation right into your radio. Yes, we're making aviation cool and interesting for everyone. Hang on. Aviation's always been cool. Check this out. How cool is this? 
crash, crash, turn that down. At the Plane Crazy Down Under radio show, we've got pilots, engineers, air traffic controllers, industry leaders, even politicians dropping by to chat with us about the amazing world of aviation. Wow, that's cooler than I thought, mate. The Plane Crazy Down Under radio show, Saturday mornings from 9 till 10 on 94.5 King Lake Rangers Radio. G'day, this is Owen's Up. Just a quick note to let you know that my new ebook, 50 Tales of Flight, is now out on Amazon and iTunes. Find 50 Tales and my latest updates at owensup.com. In the meantime, sit back, relax, enjoy the show with Grant and Steve. Saturday morning. In the skies of scattered cloud above the town of Ichuka sees a unique migration towards the aerodrome. They come from all eras, in many colours, and with their own distinct sounds. Once a year, members of the Antique Aeroplane Association of Australia get together with their prized pieces of flying history for a relaxed social get-together over the weekend. They catch up with friends, make new ones, trade notes on the fine arts of vintage aircraft ownership and restoration, and overall, enjoy their time with other like-minded, passionate individuals. They come from all walks of life and are all bounded by their common interests, their aircraft. It's a unique atmosphere for an aerodrome. Conversations between friends, fellow aircraft type owners and total strangers take place with the background ambience of classic aircraft engines and constantly interrupted by the departing aircraft. Much to their mutual understanding. Ichuka is nestled on the Murray River which forms the state border between Victoria and New South Wales. Located 210 kilometres or 130 miles north of Melbourne, the town is famous for its history as a former busy river port, once home to a fleet of many paddle steamer vessels plying its trade along the communities of the river. Its aerodrome, like many across regional Australia, is uncontrolled. It has two runways, runway 17 and 35 at 1,102 metres or 3,615 feet. It's a sealed asphalt runway with a parallel grass strip. And a cross gravel strip, runway 05 and 23 
that's 510 metres or 1,673 feet. The wind is a northerly and favours the main runway. This weekend we'll see over 100 visiting aircraft. A unique blend of civilian and military histories, making the pilgrimage to Echuca what a yearly national fly-in. The Antique Aeroplane Association of Australia is a national body which promotes the preservation, rebuilding and above all, no pun intended, the flying of old aeroplanes. Matt Henderson is the Vice President, with wife Karen, who is the Membership Secretary of the Antique Aeroplane Association of Australia. The Association uh, was, I guess, born out of a need, sort of in the, the early to mid-70s, um, at a time of, uh, I guess, um, when the government was reviewing, you know, the airworthiness of, you know, antique aeroplanes, um, the Tiger Moths and Osters, um, and, um, you know, a, a group of people who were, I guess, trying to advocate or be advocates of the, you know, the need to keep these aeroplanes flying and, and keep as much bureaucracy away from that as possible, um, kind of, you know, was the the birth of the association um and since then it's 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 maintained that to a degree um you know we still have a a role to play as being an advocate of um you know people who, who fly antique and, and vintage airplanes um so you know when and as required we you know will um you know provide submissions to government on you know rulemaking um if there's any proposals to make new rules that impact you know our members aircraft um, or their operations um you know, similar to, I guess, AOPA and, and those type of organisations in that respect. The National Fly-In is a coordinated effort between the Association and the local Ichuka Aero Club, who are playing host to this weekend's activities. Ichuka Aero Club President, Peter Arnold. So we're a very social club. Uh, we, we, we do a lot of flyaways and we go to uh, other airfields, that sort of thing, but we also uh, host the visiting groups and we get fairly heavily involved in local community work, you know, for the hospitals and those sorts of things. So we're a very, very close club. We're a very uh, supportive club and uh, we have a terrific time. And, and a visit like the Antique is on this weekend is something that we really look forward to. Uh, and we, we, we go right out of our way to accommodate, you know, visiting aircraft and pilots as, as much as we can, make it a, a really rewarding, uh, good experience for them. Uh, done a lot of work to uh, make the, the airport um, uh, very safe, of course, and also uh, make it appealing. Uh, we've, we've done a lot of tidying up. We've had assistance from the council to uh, redo one of our taxiways, which was uh, actually under under size, according to CASA. Uh, the council just finished that off for us. That was a major undertaking for them, which we're very appreciative. Um, we work as close as we can with the council, and generally the council are pretty good to us. I mean, they've got a lot on their plate, you know, and. It's, it's just these days, it's, uh, the money doesn't go as far as it used to for, for all sorts of different reasons. But uh, the council have been very supportive and, and we're very happy with the support we've received from the council. Uh, we, we, we do a lot of self-help ourselves. If we can jump on a tractor or whatever and we're allowed to do it, then we'll do that as well. Like we, we cut a lot of grass down to a good level for the, especially the tail dragging aircraft. Uh, so we put out parking uh, bay areas, we've got extra toilets. Um, we've had a big, uh, big working bee and cleaned out all the hangars so we can accommodate, you know, the dinners and the lunches and the lectures and that type of thing. Um, we provided uh, meals. Um, some of the guys have 
uh, camped under the wing and they've used our shower and our toilet facilities, which they're more than welcome to do, of course. And uh, we've, we've had a really, uh, a really terrific time just talking to people about their aircraft because we don't always get the opportunity with so many varied aircraft flying in. It's, it's a real smorgasbord of, of uh, the old aircraft, which uh, are quite fascinating. So we're, we're very pleased to have the Antiquas Association here. And uh, we think uh, we hope we'll have a continued um, uh, um, working with them in the future. The, the Aero Club predominantly is, is one of the most supportive Aero Clubs that we've ever dealt with. Um, they make coming here really easy. Um, you know, they, they look after us, they've got really good facilities. Um, the, the airfield uh, is good in terms of parking areas. You know, we can get 200 aeroplanes here if we had to and park them uh, and be able to operate reasonably effectively. Um, the town is a tourism town, you know, it's a tourist town, that's what is all about. So they've got, you know, plenty of accommodation, plenty of services, plenty of hotel, uh, you know, places to eat, um, tourism activities. So it kind of ticks a lot of boxes. It's it's in an area, um, we, again, when we're looking at events, um, we try to aim for areas that are accessible to the majority of the membership. So the majority of the membership is, is New South Wales and Victorian. The association organises its members' aircraft into four categories, starting with Antique, aircraft produced on or before August 1945, such as your Osters, Tiger Moths, Aronka Chiefs, and Avro Cadets. Classic, aircraft that were produced on or after September 1945 up until the end of 1955. This includes Cessna 195 business liners, Globe Swifts, and de Havilland chip buns. Contemporary. Aircraft produced from the beginning of 1956 to 1970. Early model Piper Cherokees, Cessna 172s, Beechcraft Barons, some of which you may have even got your pilot's license on. And Warbirds. Aircraft which were produced and operated by militaries of any nation. We're always. CT4s. Yaks and Nanchangs, and the occasional S211 Air Mackie jet. However, even though the weekend is famed for classic aircraft, the association are easygoing and hospitable towards all aviators and their flying machines. One of the biggest things that the association has probably meant to us, or you know, we've probably seen since being involved, is um, it's really just a big social group. Um, the the association is a is a big family of people who love old aeroplanes, and um, the um, the the thing that we love about the association is you know the the, the camaraderie. Extends to everyone. It doesn't matter what aeroplane you fly. Um, you know, as, as you see out on the field today, there's, you know, there's 1930s aircraft right up to, you know, current, you know, 
home-built aeroplanes um, and the sports star that you flew in. It, it doesn't really matter what you fly. Um, the thing that we all have an interest in is, you know, a love and passion for old aeroplanes. Uh, and, and that, I think, breaks down any politics or classes or anything else that goes on. And, and that's what I think everyone really appreciates about the association is, is just a big family environment. I felt a little out of place taxiing on the uh, sports car. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone look at me going, how old is that thing? Yeah. <laughs> as long as you park near the RVs, it's fine. <laughs> and I think, you know, it's, you know we're, we're probably one of the few associations where, um, you know, despite being, you know, the Antique Aeroplane Association, um, as I said, you know, you can join the association if you don't own an aeroplane. It, it doesn't matter what you own, you can join the association and, and be um, and be a member and be welcomed at any event. Uh, we, we have members that aren't pilots. Yeah. We have members that don't want to learn to fly, they just like aeroplanes. The spirit of the association and this event comes from their membership and the aircraft they bring with them. 75-year-old Geoffrey Wills and his son, 39-year-old Chris, from Streffham, Victoria, make the pilgrimage every year in their 1937 de Havilland Hornet Moth. It's a cabin, biplane, two-seater side-by-side. Um, it was built by de Havilland, Geoffrey de Havilland, as a comfortable touring aircraft. So it has a long range, five-hour endurance, and um, yeah, it's very comfortable for, for touring, as it's intended to be. Just seeing with it, with it um, when Don owned it, and I just fell in love with it, and then it was offered to me uh, as a purchase, and I jumped at it because I just loved the appearance of it and the charm of the old biplane, as well as the comfort of the cabin, and uh, yeah, just just really what I loved. What do you love about this aircraft in particular and its handling? This particular aircraft, well, this, um, there's only about 15 of them left flying in the world are airworthy. There are about 164 of them built originally. And uh, this is one of four that are in Australia. Uh, this particular one has a quite a colourful history. It spent uh, six years in the RAF. Um, before and after, it that it was owned by Mrs. Marion Wilberforce, who was one of the original Atta girls. That's an auxiliary transport. So she flew new aircraft from the factories to the different respective squadrons. And she was just an amazing pilot. She was one of four of the Atta girls who was qualified to fly four-engine bombers. Uh, but besides that, she was just a very colourful personality, amazing woman. So she had, uh, she owned this probably longer than any other single owner. Also a former founding member of the association, has seen the event and the membership grow over many decades. We've had that in mind for some time, uh, about forming a group of old aircraft. Um, Originally in the late 60s, I had a Tiger Moth and still have it all. It's now owned by my son. And um, I was very keen to get a gathering of uh, like-minded people, but uh, I was a little bit too early. There, there wasn't that same enthusiasm there is now, particularly for Tiger Moths. Um, and then in uh, 1972, uh, Barry Bell, with a few of his uh, friends, decided to see if they could 
gather these uh, like-minded people together, not only the Tiger Moss, but antique aircraft, uh, to restore them, to keep them here in Australia, because they're starting to be exported, and also to have our nav charges reduced, put in a special category, so that we didn't have to pay the exorbitant fees, which were they, they were then, but they're not, no longer existing. Um, so that's, uh, that's how it originated. And in 1972, we had a trial run at Bendigo to see how many people we could get together. And uh, from there, it's grown to what it is now, probably the best um, aviation association, I'd say, in the Southern Hemisphere, one of the best in the world, uh, due to great presidents and great committees over the years. Another tale of passionate aircraft ownership can be told nearby from 74-year-old Murray Wallace and his wife Andy from Kyneton, Victoria, with their 1958 Cessna 180A in authentic Australian Army livery. I joined the Army to fly in uh, 1961, uh, flew Bell 47s and Cessna 180s there, um, and uh, flew this aircraft uh, quite a bit. I actually put about 200 hours on it in New Guinea. Um, uh, left the army, joined airlines and uh, had an another life I suppose, for want of a better word. And uh, about three years ago, uh, our son saw this aircraft, or an ex-army Cessna, for sale. Uh, I said, uh, yes, so all right. Uh, about three days later he rang up and said, it's number 340. Uh, Andrea went away to my logbook said, you're flying it, we've got to have it. <laughs> so uh, that's, we, we have it, <laughs> basically. Yeah. We need it like a hole in the head, but there you go. <laughs> no, it's, it's been fun already with it, it really has. Um, and, and it's not uncommon for spouses to encourage a purchase of aircraft, is it? <laughs> well, well I'm, like, I'm very lucky, actually. I think sort of really, uh, uh, we bought a CT4 uh, back from the RAF in the auction in 93. And uh, that was uh, that was our aircraft. Uh, um, uh, a bit later on, uh, we decided we wanted to go faster, so uh, we bought a Marchetti SF260. Uh, the idea being we'd keep both aircraft for a year, and uh, and then uh, decide which one was the one we wanted to keep. After a year, I said, "Well, we're selling the CT4," and Andrea said, "No, you can't." So I, I agreed rather rapidly. So uh, uh, it's sort of grown from there. No, it's all, it's all her fault. No, no, no. <laughs> My, my mother had left me some money and I thought really this is an opportunity our son's an aircraft engineer so basically I thought you know one day he might be interested to have it well actually really he's 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 one of the driving forces with this aircraft because uh, uh, I guess it's very unusual for your son to get a chance to fly uh, the aircraft his father flew in the military really uh, and uh, uh, it'll obviously be handed down to him. Right next to Murray and Andy is 68-year-old Murray Evans from Sydney, as he was pre-flighting his 1948 Stinson 108-3 to go on a local flight. Well, the Stinsons were um, uh, very popular planes uh, after World War II. The, the company itself was formed in the 30s, but um, they built this particular model after World War II. Um, but unfortunately, they, uh, the company went out of business uh, in '48, um, and this was one of the very last Stinson 108-3s uh, that was built, uh, built very late '48. Um, it's a four-seater, 
It's high wing, has a, a Franklin 165 horsepower, uh, six cylinder engine. It's very smooth in the air, um, has a very good load carrying capacity. I can load four people, luggage and full tanks and I can still take off easily. What do you love about flying this aircraft in terms of its uh, handling characteristics? Well, that's, that's the thing I like about it. It's a very nice plane to fly. It's very stable in the air. Um, it, it's not fast. It's about 93, 95 knots. Um, but it's, not, it's, you know, it's, it's fast enough for me. And uh, if you like flying, it means you're up there more longer period of time anyway. So, so uh, yeah, no, it's, just, it's good all around. I like it. Another unique aircraft type that has flown in is a 1946 Urku owned by 55-year-old Jack Vipers from Tyab, Victoria. Um, it was designed originally in um, 1937 by Fred Wykes, and uh, this uh, ended up being up uh, about 240, number 240 off the production line in 46 after the war. And um, it's lived most of its life in America, and uh, I imported it uh, a few years ago and restored it, and here it is now. Yeah, and uh, what connection do you have with the aircraft sort of that got you end up owning one? Well, I always liked the look of them. I saw one at Tyab um, several years ago and thought it was a really interesting little plane. Um, lots of different features about it. It has twin tails, um, it has no rudder pedals. Um, it's very unconventional in terms of the way you fly it, uh, particularly when you land it because you have to uh, relearn how to land an aircraft all over again because it crabs in. But um, yeah, so I went over to America and I looked around for a couple of years um, trying to find one and eventually got one. Oster aircraft are a popular choice for antique aircraft aficionados and every year sees a large contingent of Osters of all marks and models. One example comes from 55-year-old Ian Richardson from the Oaks in New South Wales, who has flown in this weekend in his 1944 Oster Mark V. I was looking for an Oster and didn't really know much about these and uh, I came across this one up in Gympie in Queensland. It's a Normandy veteran, so the history attracted me to it. Hasn't been flown much over the past few years and we've had to do a bit of work to recover from that, but really nice thing to fly and I've had it for about a month now. A visiting aircraft which captured the attention of all present was the arrival of Guy Burke's 1939 Waco AGC-8 with custom cabin, still with its American registration of November Charlie 66206. Yes, well it was uh, originally built as uh, a batch of eight ordered by the American CAA in 1938, um, the CAA being the forerunner of the modern FAA. And they were uh, built the aircraft, um, they ordered them from Waco because they're custom cabin, you had to actually order the aircraft, they weren't built um, unless you ordered them and they uh, ordered eight for uh, just for flying around the air routes of America, flying examiners of airmen and things like that around and they were impressed during the war, during the Second World War and served with the uh, US Air Force but still in the American CIA markings which was orange and black and then it had various owners after the war and ended up um, hauling salmon out of Alaska and that was the last time it flew in 1965 and it was uh, I think crashed in a riverbed there and then they finally ended up in the hands of a fellow called Jack Fenelak from um, Cleveland, Ohio and he gave it to the capable man John Burton to restore and 7,000 man hours later um, here it is and we're very lucky to have uh, purchased the aircraft and it's in excellent condition we've been enjoying it a lot.
And uh, what was the process for you to end up acquiring this aircraft? Yeah, well, Craig Tabiner um, emailed me a link uh, to Starman Brothers Auctions in, in America, and they're auctioning um, Jack's collection of about 13 aircraft and uh, all various types and models of aircraft. And it caught my eye, and I always uh, wanted to uh, own a, a Wake Custom Cabin uh, at some stage, and I saw it in, in the photos. I thought, wow, that looks great. And I had uh, a few days off at work, so I flew over to the auction and uh, promised my wife I wouldn't buy it. But uh, actually, no, not quite, not, not really, but uh, she, she knew I was um, had the glint in my eye. And so when I saw it in, in the flesh um, and, and had a look at the aircraft in the corner of the hangar there, I just thought, wow, you know, if I can get this, I'll be a really lucky man because the standard of work was, is excellent. Um, all new metal throughout the aircraft ground up restoration or new wood and uh, just the cost of doing something like that myself would would be um, uh, prohibitive but so I was very lucky to have my hand up last at the auction bought it there and then um, my wife and I decided our two young kids to then fly it around America for about 30 hours or so um, before we put it in a container and shipped it out to Australia so we flew into Oshkosh which is a real honor in your own airplane not only flying to Oshkosh but doing it in your own aircraft was great and we spent a week there then uh, flew it to the um, Blakesburg flying the Antique Airplane Association of America's flying in Blakesburg Iowa and then down through the Midwest and end up in Florida where we, uh, uh, Brad Neal from Brad Neal Aviation packed that aircraft up and did an excellent job. It arrived in Australia without a scratch. So he's the go-to man, certainly on the East Coast for packing up aircraft. And because um, being fabric, uh, yeah, you really got to um, know what you're doing. So, and then we reassembled it back here in Australia and been enjoying it ever since. All the members agreed, however, that the ownership of an antique aircraft requires a heavy commitment, both in effort and financially. I think it's a bottomless pit, really. <laughs> um, you know, buying buying them is one thing, and then restoring them, um, you know, you sink you can sink a lot of money into it. Um, but I've done a lot of work on this myself, and it's um, registered in the RAA now, so that makes it uh, all kosher to be able to do it. So that keeps the cost down and makes it affordable for most people um, to be able to do a, a nice restoration. Well, I think the main thing is to get them checked properly. I did a lot of research on mine and got caught out by a couple of things, but uh, they weren't too bad, so I reckon just go and do it. I think it's, uh, you, you need a lot of time. You need to be a young person to take on a project, in my opinion. And uh, I think if you've got the money, you're better off to buy something that's already up and flying. That's what I did, and I've got a lot of enjoyment out of this airplane uh, compared to guys that have bought planes that are um, almost finished, but they still they're still not flying, so uh, I'm happy that I did it this way. Well, you, you, <laughs> I could you, tell you, start when you're young. If you're going to restore or rebuild, for a start, you know we've left our run a bit late to do a lot of things. But oh no! Um, <laughs> but you, you really, you, you have to love it. Uh, if you couldn't do it just just uh, to be part of a scene, you, you, you've got to uh, love the uh, the uh, the restoration part of it, uh, and then. Uh, you've got to uh, not really begrudge the fact you're going to spend money on it. They, they do cost money. And, uh, and then you've got to enjoy the flying of it. And then the, uh, the, one of the big bonuses, of course, is the camaraderie here. When you, when you, you look around and you've, we've got to know people you know, well, in the last 20 years and uh, you have a great time. And also I think if you own an old aircraft, it's like an old house or an old car. You're only the custodians of it and you have to look after it for the next generation or the next person. The fly-in and their membership to the association however is something that each and every visiting member hold dearly. Well the, 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 I suppose that's what brings us all together because we have that same love of old aircraft and 
there seems to be something about the, the group of people who do love the old aircraft that just makes them friendly, easy to get on with, and just very pleasant to meet on a regular basis as we do now. What do you love about sort of the scene, the antique aircraft scene? Well, Pe- well, people and aircraft. I'm yes. not sure which is more interesting. You're, you're sometimes you with a group of people have got the same the same aim in life. Really, uh, they love old aircraft. Well, mm. mm. flying generally, mm. aircraft generally. We like anything that goes fast and makes a lot of noise. So you know, maybe we're strange. Except we, sure. don't, we don't go fast. <laughs> no, no, but I mean, we like watching motorbike racing and motor car racing. We go to Reno every year. This will be our 15th year at Reno to the air races. So we're kind of different. is also a great opportunity to gather a captive audience. Every year, QBE Insurance, sponsors of the Fly-In and of the Antique Aeroplane Association of Australia, hold seminars for aircraft owners and pilots on safety-related matters. They are a unique stakeholder in Australian aviation as a provider and underwriter of many insurance policies across a large spectrum of clients and also actively promoting aviation safety initiatives through the QBE Airmanship Program. Yeah, we, we sponsor the Antiquers and have, uh, you know, for, for well over, you know, 25, 30 years. Um, uh, so, but outside just the sponsorship, what we do is um, we provide a safety seminar uh, at their annual flying um, to promote safety, airmanship, um, and, uh, and we just see that goes hand in hand with insurance sort of thing, that uh, we're out there promoting these type of things rather than just, uh, you know, sitting in an office and uh, uh, being at the end of a telephone line sort of thing. So. This year, QBE Insurance brought along Australian Transport Safety Bureau Senior Investigator Mike Watson to do a presentation on accidents that he has investigated involving vintage aircraft as well as general aviation aircraft and pilot behaviours that contributed to them. Um, what brought us here, it's a large community of enthusiasts who fly wonderful old aircraft. Um, uh, there, has been a cu- there have been a couple of accidents in the past year and I wanted to highlight the particular risks that they've been exposing themselves to recently and saying certain events or environments they work in will provide increased risk and how best to manage those risks and to be aware of what caused risk in these particular accidents so they can choose how to manage their flights to avoid them in the future. And have you, is there any differentiation you see with antique aeroplane owners and pilots as opposed to the rest of aviation? 
I don't think so as pilots. However, they have special aircraft. They have got more focused on their beautiful their old aircraft. And it's important to remember that the risks that apply to, I say ordinary, modern aircraft also apply to old aircraft. And they have to remain aware of the same risk that applies to every aircraft once they're flying. As uh, Mac has said, I'm, I'm here really just to give a bit of a... Following Mike Watson's presentation came world champion Red Bull Air Race pilot Matt Hall, an ambassador for QBE's airmanship program, to provide his presentation on his background as a former Royal Australian Air Force combat fighter pilot instructor and also his take on airmanship. Um, basically, yeah, the uh, the fly-in, the um, you know, the annual fly-in for the Antiquas, um, and QBE, they're just very keen to uh, to get the word. Yeah, you know, not not really teach anyone about airmanship, but more just put a different slant on the thought about it. Just remind people about you know it is you know, airmanship ends up being the uh, the decider about how much risk people are taking. So it's just uh, it's just coming down here and just putting some ideas in people's heads to give them a different way to think about it. And if that uh, saves uh, saves one crash in the next 20 years, it's been worth it. What is it about the uh, antique aircraft that you love? Um, I just love the old, the old aircraft. That uh, the way they're built, the way they smell, the sound of them, uh, and the fact that people you know, keep them airborne. You know, I, I own an antique myself. You know, so it's um, it, it's just it's it's part of history, and it's always nice to own part of history. Yep. And you want to tell uh, the listeners uh, what that aircraft you own is? Um, yeah, I own a share in a P fifty one Mustang. So it's a it's a nice it's a nice plane. It's a obviously a little bit expensive to run but that's uh, aviation you've got to accept sometimes that there's an expense involved to do it right yep and do you have any other favorite aircraft of the uh, antique kind oh well um yeah i'd love i'd love to fly a spitfire but uh, to tell you the truth um i love all aircraft so it doesn't matter which one i'm in uh the one i'm in is actually the one i, I love so um any plane that uh, is flying is uh, is a treasure as a friend of this podcast the opportunity was also sought to get an update on both the Blue Mountains Bicentenary flyover as well as Matt Hall Racing and the return of the Red Bull Air Race. Um, yeah, so we've basically got everything in place now. So uh, we, I think we're just wrapping up now on um, on applications and uh, they've changed the focus now from being uh, you know, the record-breaking fly pass just due uh, application numbers to more of still just the celebration of of the uh, of the bicentenary, um, we've got the roulette, we've got a herc, uh, we've got some jets, we've got some uh, warbirds, we've got you know, light sport aircraft. So we've got a quite a good range, you know, choppers as well. And uh, you know, so long as the weather behaves itself, it should be uh, still a great event. Very good. And uh, how many aircraft are you looking? Uh, at the moment, probably about uh, 60 to 70 aircraft still taking part on a uh, on a fly past. It'll be uh, it'll span about an hour and a half. Um, so it's not going to be like a big blob of aircraft blocking out the sun. It's going to be a, a very uh, structured and, um, and timed event with you know, one aircraft per minute basically uh, flying over. So everyone gets a chance to look at each aircraft as it goes over. Yep. And uh, how's everything going with the uh, Matt Hall racing team uh, in terms of the Red Bull Air Race? What can you tell us uh, updates wise if there um, is any? Yeah, the um, things are going well with, uh, with the team. We've got you know, quite a bit on, yeah, obviously including... Uh, this stuff with um, with um, the QBE uh, Airmanship Ambassador Program. Uh, we've got the Blue Mountains thing. We're doing some displays, corporate speaking. Heading off to Malaysia tomorrow to do some work. And um, overall, the air race is also looking quite uh, promising uh, with us being told to, um, to start preparing for next year. So it's not guaranteed until I'm racing between pylons, but things are looking quite positive.
on the conclusion of these seminars. The most anticipated event of every year's national fly-in is the annual dinner. A great social get-together of the membership, which this year was held at the Moana Bowling Club across the state border from Echuca in New South Wales. Kelly Strange is the Secretary of the Antique Aeroplane Association of Australia and is in charge of organising this year's dinner. I think it depends on which the event is. Um, so this weekend we've had our national fly-in, so it's an opportunity for everybody to come together, actually get a chance to sit down, have a good meal, have a couple of drinks and generally just catch up um, over the last year's events, what they've been up to, where they've been flying, what they're now flying and just generally have a good chat. But also it's a good opportunity just for us to recognise the achievements that people have made in the last year. So what planes they might have um, acquired or they've worked on, what planes have finally got back into the air after many years of toiling over fabric and toiling over pieces of metal in the lounge room. Um, and we can recognise and award those planes as well. Part of the annual fly-ins dinner the association also presents awards to judged visiting aircraft. The presentations provide an almost entertainment value and also, at times, a little cheeky. Murray Wallace, apparently both him and his plane are classics. <laughs> I'm not sure how he's going to take that. But our winner for Ladies' Choice for 2013 is the Ryan and Marie Scott Tavener. Thank you very much. Um, yeah, that's a great thing. I've been trying to bribe this one for a while, so finally taking all those girls for a flight's finally paid off. Hands off, he's mine. I may be small, but I'm vicious. <laughs> that for the first time in a long time there was actually a male passenger in one of the flights in the Rhine. But it didn't count because it was Scott's dad. However, the coveted trophies make the last of the award presentations. For the reserve grand champion of the year's fly-in? Uh, the reserve grand champion. Does everyone know what reserve grand champion means? Second best. <laughs> How does that feel, uh, Guy? <laughs> well, guess who it was? Arnold <laughs> oh, Colin Taylor. Beautiful polish by 95. Bloody Cessna 195. With electric wind-up windows. <laughs> And the overall grand champion, which this award was presented to. Oh, sorry. Well, this year's grand champion, um, Pete's been taking the piss out of him all night. But the truth is, certain aeroplane out there with biplane. It's a lovely machine, and uh, Guy, it's time for you to come back. Oh, God. And I honestly did not know. I didn't. 
There's not a person in this room that believes me. <laughs> well done, Guy, on a beautiful aircraft. The dinner, generally it's, it's a pretty upbeat, but pretty casual, happy atmosphere. Everyone's quite excited to see each other and spend time with people that, you know, for me, they're in a lot of ways more my family than some of my extended relatives. So it's nice to be able to catch up with them and that excitement of seeing people you haven't seen in a long time and hearing their stories. Um, but then also there were things last night, like some of the awards, were quite emotional for people because of that sentiment that they have um, and that connection that they have to the plane or to the award or what it means for them after everything they've done to have that recognition. Here, prop left. Prayer left. now Sunday morning. Most visiting pilots and members are slowly emerging onto the aerodrome and pre-flighting their aircraft to begin the journey back to their respective hometowns and hangars. A gourmet breakfast is cooked up on the barbecue and served in the local Ichuka Aero Club building and members are reminiscing the entertaining events of the previous night's presentation dinner. Although it's been less than 48 hours since the migration of the aircraft and their pilots, it is here that they all part company, with lots of handshakes and hugs. It's been another successful national fly-in, this being the 37th in the association's history. Karen and Matt Henderson is pleased with this. I think it's been very successful. Um, the, the feedback that we've had from people over the weekend has been really positive. Um, Karen's talked to everyone over the weekend in, in the role of, um, I guess, renewing everyone's membership and, and sort of welcoming everyone uh, to the event. Um, I guess she gets to speak to everyone. Um, I tend not to get to speak to everyone because I'm out running around doing things, um, whereas Karen gets to speak to everyone. So um. It's good. The members are, are good at providing feedback at events. So, um, you know, if there's things that they don't like or things that we could do better, they're, they're good at letting us know so that we can change them for future events. So um, I haven't, yeah, haven't heard anything negative about this weekend. Everyone said what a great time they've had. The dinner was was great, so um, I'd definitely say it was a success. Announced at the previous evening's dinner, the next Antique Aeroplane Association of Australia National Fly-In will be held on the 28th to the 30th of March 2014 in the town of Tamora, located in southern New South Wales, home to the world-famous Tamora Aviation Museum. A fair bit, you know, there's a lot of... Uh, work that goes into planning a big event like that and we've just you know really just started with having a trying to decide where to have the event to begin with um, you know we know it's going to be a big event um, we know that we're going to need a lot of support to help put it on um, the uh, folks at the Tomorrow Aviation Museum say uh, Kenny and Lisa Love were very supportive of an idea of hosting it up there and, and very keen to, to have the event hosted there um, as was the Tomorrow Shire Council um, so we've, we've secured tomorrow as the, the location for next year's event and now the real detailed planning starts on making that successful. Um, you know, it's, 
there's a lot of things that we have to do next year that we don't do during a normal year. Um, you know, we're, we're keen to showcase the history of the association, so um, we're going to be spending a lot of time talking to you know, a lot of the past presidents, a lot of the past committee members, um, trying to dredge out photos and videos of you know, all the events that have been held over the years to try and you know, really build a, a showcase evening of the association. Since the announcement last night of, of where we're having it, uh, a lot of members have come up to us with ideas already about things that we could do and people to talk to, so everyone's getting quite excited about it. of a sports game. People depart from the congestion of the taxiways into the clear freedom of the sky back to their hometowns. And from here, your reporter does the same in a much more contemporary aluminium-built 2008 Evector Sports Star. Clear prop! In Echuca, Victoria, Micah Lee, playing crazy down under. Campbell, it's just a couple of days before you depart on your around-the-world flight. Uh, how are you feeling, mate? Excited? Uh, I, th- I think I'll be excited on Sunday morning. There's just uh, the stress of all the last-minute hurry to get everything all sorted and in line. You've had a, a few little hiccups along the way during the planning for this flight. Uh, I guess we, we mentioned that in the last show, actually. Um, when we spoke to you at Avalon, you were uh, flying a Cessna 182. That's fallen through now, and you're flying a Cirrus. So, well, I, I guess you're doing it in style. <laughs> yes, I, I had a bit of an upgrade there. It's a 2009 SR. 22G3. So it's a very nice aeroplane. It's got Garmin perspective in it and uh, I'm hooked now after flying it. Did it take you, had you had much exposure to that sort of uh, Garmin technology uh, you know, before you had exposure to this aircraft? No, I did a little bit in a Cirrus for my instrument rating with a Aberdyne screen, but it also was running a six-pack. So to get into the Garmin was very new. Uh, I had a little bit of G1000 time in a Mooney button thing, uh, nothing like this, but I was surprised how fast uh, that I picked it up, really. i got to tell you, I uh, had my my first experience in a Cirrus and SR20 just a couple of weekends ago, and uh, I tell you what, mate, I'm in love. What a beautiful aircraft. They are amazing, and, and I'd only actually ever flown the SR20, but to get in the 22, it did everything the same, just better. The performance is mind-blowing. Now, I wanted to talk about that. Um, how far into your planning were you with the 182 and how much sort of changes did you have to make? I guess uh, you know the fuel consumption, the airspeeds, all that sort of stuff would be uh, quite different for the Cirrus. It was very different. I'd actually planned the entire flight. I'd, you know, ready to put the tanking in the 182 and everything. We were really quite a way down that road. Uh, but then, as you said, we had a, a bit of a change and, and ended up with the Cirrus. So the fuel burn remained pretty uh, pretty similar, but even though the costs were higher with the Cirrus, and actually evened out because the aircraft was so much faster, uh, we, we uh, managed to get around the world uh, in our planning stage a lot quicker. Right, right, no problem. Well, just out of interest, what is the fuel flow? Is it sort of high 30s per hour? I can get it back down to, uh, and I'll be talking gallons an hour, <laughs> gallons an hour, but I can get it back down to about 14 gallons an hour, 14 and a half gallons an hour. Um, that's, you know, slowed up a little bit, and that's what I'll be using for the long Hawaii to California leg. Otherwise, uh, still running Lena Peak, 
uh, 14 and a half, 15 gallons an hour is, is pretty good. No worries. And I should mention to our listeners, if they want to track you, uh, it's uh, VH Oscar Lima Sierra. It is, yes. Now, you've got all the sponsors. You've got the aircraft ready. Did you uh, have much trouble getting uh, extra tanks put in that plane? No, we didn't have too much of an issue. We did it through uh, Darren and the crew at McClay Aircraft Maintenance last week. And actually this week, sorry. So we did it over the weekend, got the tank in, and, and we've done all our test flights. And uh, they did a phenomenal job. It's quite a permanent system in comparison to what a normal ferry flight would use. And uh, it's a big 160-gallon bladder in the back. Uh, it's all strapped down, and the pump system runs down in the front right footwell. Uh, there's a lot of redundancy there. It's a very safe and simple system, and I think that's exactly what you want uh, for a flight like this. Now, I'm not familiar with these systems, Ryan. Does that actually pump fuel direct into the engine, or is it pumping it into the tanks so you can pump it from there? Now, the best thing about this system over what we're looking at with the 182 is it actually pumps into the right wing. And so basically, you, you take off and climb on your left. When you're in cruise, you switch over to your right tank and you sit there, uh, and, and every certain amount of time, you, you turn your pumps on. It pumps from the 160-gallon bladder out the floor and then under about a three-foot piece of hose that runs out into the main fuel drain, and then it runs up and it fills the tank up. So it's, I can tell you it's a bit different to sit there and watch your fuel needle go up. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that would be uh, yeah, it'd be almost like being in the Air Force, wouldn't it, taking on some in-flight refuelling? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's very cool. I should speak about the Air Force, mate. You've had uh, quite a lot of support from those guys. It was. The Air Force you know, jumped on board quite a long time ago and uh, they provided support in the PR department and uh, they've also booked in the roulettes for my homecoming, which will be super exciting to have a bit of an event at Wollongong. But overall, it's been great to have their support, their publicity and, and such. Now, Ryan, tell us about the, the planning. Uh, obviously extensive. I noticed that you're uh, getting sponsorship there from Jefferson, so you've got an aircraft full of JEP charts? I do, yeah. So the whole flight's run on JEP charts, obviously flying IFR the whole way around the world, flying under the IKO rules, flying uh, using JEP charts, being worldwide. It's it's pretty seamless, really. Uh, I think you've got to deal with a fair bit of air traffic control. I'm not sure I'll be able to talk about it more when I get home. Um, obviously, all in English, but accents and such will, will make for a little bit of interesting conversation. But all in all, Jefferson have uh, provided everything we need, including the charts in the G1000 itself for the whole flight. Oh, well, that's excellent, mate. Now, now um, you've obviously had some coordination, I guess, with uh, Air Services Australia, so you know about all your HF procedures and, and I guess all that sort of stuff? Absolutely, yeah. Look, we've got a, a, an HF installed in the aircraft and uh, we'll be able to test that out a little bit on the way to Norfolk and, and then onwards across the Pacific. But that's uh, another thing that was installed by Darren and the crew up there, which is fantastic. Now, well, tell us about some of the uh, youth causes. I noticed that there's been some press releases uh, coming out recently. Actually, there's been a lot of press releases coming out uh, from your media people talking about some of the causes. Um, you know, you're really doing the thing as being a youth ambassador, which is a great thing. Yeah, well, I hope that, um, I mean, I've been given the opportunity to do this. I've been provided the support from, you know, hundreds of people and companies and organisations. And, you know, my passion is youth in aviation. We need to get more young kids into flying. It's a pretty poor industry for that type of thing. And, and you know, I'm pretty thought about it. Um, the way I learned to fly was uh, pretty lucky, you know, to with a family in aviation, I still had to learn that you could fly solo on your 15th birthday through a newspaper article. So there's just a lack of education. I think, you know, there's a lot of people out there who could afford, you know, money. You can always find a way to get money, you know, if you get a job and, and save. So I think if we find a way to educate young kids about aviation and how accessible it is and at what ages and, and, and what the methods are, I think we'll see a lot more young kids jump into flying, hopefully. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's that's what we're all about here at our show is to just to try and promote flying. So I imagine we're going to have to have you on the line fairly regularly here on the show when you get back. Absolutely. No, that'd be great. No worries. Now, you're departing on the 30 now, as this goes to air, you'll already be in the air, but you're departing from uh, Wollongong, heading across 
across to Norfolk Island, making your way across the Pacific, and uh, you're going to the States and you'll be coming to Oshkosh. So uh, all of our listeners there, you're going to spend quite a few days at Oshkosh, and we'd uh, certainly encourage all of our listeners to you know to get across there if you're going to Air Venture. Lucky devils, uh, I'm not going, but Baz Sheffers actually is going from our team. So uh, make sure you uh, get out there and support Ryan, and uh, we'll have to make sure, Ryan, that uh, Baz gets up and uh, sticks a microphone under your nose. Yeah, that'll be fantastic. It'll be a bit of a break. Uh, you know, the first kind of third of the flight will be over, and it'll be great uh, to, to see the family and clean the airplane and kind of get it back there a state where I'm ready to go and, and tackle the North Atlantic. Yeah, that'll be a very, very challenging leg. I, I should just ask you, I guess uh, flying across these long overwater legs, you'll be uh, obviously, I guess, decked out in survival gear. How have you found flying with all that stuff on? Yeah, immersion suit is something to uh, something to see with your own eyes and, and especially wearing it, it is the most uncomfortable thing on planet Earth. And But either, you know, it's, it's not designed to be comfortable, it's designed to do a job and hopefully won't need to use it. But um, it is, it's very interesting to see all the stuff. It's a bit different to flying local flights or scenic flights that's for sure Now Ryan as you're heading off uh, you know here at PCDU we're very proud uh, very proud of our audience actually that we were able to raise uh, $550 to uh, go towards uh, your fund uh, are you still taking donations uh, once you're in the air? Absolutely no I really appreciate it from all the listeners a big thank you from myself and the crew we are taking donations as the, as the trip goes on you can do that uh, to two ways you can either do it to us uh, directly and, and we are still fundraising for the flight as we go on uh, and we're also fundraising for World Youth International we're partnered up with the Dare Dream Scholarship Fund where we can send 10 young Aussies who've shown uh, commitment in their community overseas on a life experience uh, aid mission. So you can donate to either Team World Flight or World Youth International through the website at any time. We should mention that uh, if people want to follow your flight, I notice you've got uh, some live tracking up here on the website and people can check that out at teenworldflight.com and they can follow you on Twitter as well? They can. We're linked up with Telstra uh, to connect. We've got a, a tracking system that's live on the website at all times to be able to see where in the world I am. And yeah, basically we will be on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all the social media, YouTube, jump on there and, and link up through the website and that's the best way to keep in touch. Ryan, it's just such a wonderful thing that you're doing, mate. I wish you all the very best for a safe flight, a successful trip. We know it's going to be and uh, we'll, we'll make sure that we catch up with you as often as we can throughout the trip and uh, we'll certainly be talking to you when you get back, uh, setting the world record for being the youngest person to fly solo around the world. Good luck, mate. I appreciate it. Thanks so much. Hi, I'm Dave Homewood from the Wings Over New Zealand show. New Zealand's own aviation podcast series, where we feature the stories of Kiwi pilots, warbird restorers, Air Force veterans, home builders, historians, authors, modelers, stories from aviation museums and associations, airshow reports, and much, much more. The Wings Over New Zealand show loves to bring you the stories of Kiwis who've made their mark on aviation. So find the Wings Over New Zealand show online. Find more about it on the world-famous Wings Over New Zealand aviation forum and like us on Facebook. We also love to listen to Steve, Grant and the team at the Plane Crazy Down Under Show. Want to see Sydney from a different angle? Red Baron Adventures have the flight experience for you. From the aerobatic thrills of the Red Bull stunt plane to scenic flights over Sydney Harbour, there's something for everyone. So check it out at redbaron.com.au for the best seat in the house. Game challenge begins. Launch. Circular Orbit Rapid Rendezvous Intercept and dock with International Space Station All engine running Liftoff Tower Flare Roll Roll 
push the ISS to higher orbit. Rescue EVA astronauts. Avoid space debris. Destroy debris with missiles. Protect the ISS. For as long as possible. Deorbit. Land. Survive. All in a day's work. We had a pretty large bank. Leo, low Earth orbit. A game from skyrocketcafe.com. Find this and other great shows at the Aviation Media Network. The Voices in Your Head.com. Welcome to Flying Above Bacchus Marsh. We're at approximately 1,100 feet above sea level, which puts us at about 600 feet or so, 700 feet above the ground. I'm currently on board flying with Kathy Mexted, who is madly taking photos. And uh, Kathy and I have decided to go for a little bit of a jolly flight over Bacchus Marsh in company with uh, another aircraft, one of the commercial pilots from uh, the company I work for, is flying a couple of people out here. So we thought we'd come along and uh, fly alongside. So he's probably a good mile or so ahead of us, and we're just uh, following along to see if we can land where he lands. Kathy. I'm going to hit the burner, but when we come back out of the noise, I'm going to ask you how you're going. How are you doing, Cathy? I'm doing great, thanks, Grant. And I have to say thanks a lot for bringing me this morning. The call came late last night. I didn't have time to find my beanie or my gloves or my warm socks, but uh, the burner's doing a good job. And now the sun's come up and it's magnificent. Yeah, we're moving with the wind, of course, so uh, we don't have the wind chill. Most of the cold air is down closer to the ground. And, uh, yeah, excuse the noise in the background, we're just monitoring a channel. So you do actually warm up and you get the radiant heat from the burner, so it's it's quite lovely, isn't it? I've totally thawed out. <laughs> Except your feet. How are your feet doing? Feet are fine. Uh-huh. Oh, she's got her snow boots on. <laughs> So we took off just near Bacchus Marsh, faffed around a little down low and enjoyed some uh, winds taking us out to the east. And uh, now we've popped up going high. We've uh, avoided a few uh, horse studs where they're doing a lot of trots. They've got their own tracks and so on. So you fly high over them to not freak out those precious horses. And we're really enjoying the view of Bacchus Marsh. We're heading towards Bacchus Marsh Aerodrome. And it looks like the the plan's to actually come down and land inside the boundary of the aerodrome. So that's going to be a bit of fun for us, isn't it? It's beautiful. We've seen the sunrise. I I reckon this is the only way you can fly and uh, do an interview at the same time. (laughs) Well, not without a heck of a lot of noise and some really weird sounds as you come through your uh, sound-activated microphone, hey? So this is something you couldn't do in the Yak-52? Well, it'll be a lot more clipped and a lot more shouting. (laughs) A lot more engine noise. So I reckon it's um, more relaxing than gliding and probably even more relaxing than sailing. So we're chugging along at about, what, three knots? Three or four knots. Hang on, I'll just uh, have a look on that. We're not sure we've ever been that slow before. Oh, we're up to five knots. Up to five knots. Things are starting to, now the sun's up, things are starting to freshen up. It's absolutely magic. Chugging along, how many feet are we? Right 50? now, no. That tree just went past? <laughs> no, that was earlier. No, I'm keeping us up for the moment so we can focus on talking. We're at about 900 feet above the ground right now. Okay. Just a sec, I'm just going to put some quiet burner in.
So it's got to be as close as you can get to being a bird, really, doesn't it? Just hovering. Yeah, it's it's more like being a cloud, but uh, a cloud that can go up and down. I mean, the birds can change their direction at will. I have to wait for what the winds are doing. It's all good fun. I'm just uh, having a quick listen to hear if that's uh, our other pilot, Ronald, giving me an idea of what the winds are he's getting. He seems to have slowed down a bit as he's gone lower. Yeah, we're going to see what we can uh, make happen here. Uh, I think we're going to come down a bit. It looks almost like he's trying to go right down the runway, doesn't it? Good view of um, everybody's horses and backyards and... The landforms, there's some beautiful landforms around here. Quarries, yeah. cliffs, River gullies. Yeah. Background noise. <laughs> I was pretty interested in your tank change, Grant. <laughs> yeah, you unscrew, unscrew the coupling from one and put it on the other, but there's a little bit of a procedure to go through to make sure you reduce the chance of an in-flight fire. That's a really bad thing to have happen. <laughs> it was a flurry of activity. Ah, was, it was all done to plan. I was waiting to see if the old tank went over the edge of the basket. <laughs> Don't tempt me. <laughs> Given what we pay for a 76-litre tank of uh, natural gas or LPG liquid petroleum gas rather um, I'm quite happy to keep it on board and use it again tomorrow. (laughs) (laughs) So is winter the normal time for ballooning? Any time of the year but summer can be um, pretty turbulent it can be um, uh, rough you've got more chance of thermals kicking in early if you're going to fly in summer you want to be flying as early as you can. So how often do you go up? Not often enough. Not often enough. Did you go last weekend? I did two weekends ago. I was up at uh, Mansfield. In fact, I recorded a quick chat up there, although it was mostly me monologuing because Kit didn't want to talk. She was quite inv- <laughs> quite happy enjoying the view. But um, So am I going to have to fight with her from now on? <laughs> well, it depends on where I know, I'm always second place. <laughs> Could be third, depending on how you go. Oh, no. <laughs> Still got to pack it up yet. <laughs> Might be out of my ear. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're getting close to the airport, so I'm going to start getting into um, pilot mode again and coming down. We've got some stock and some power lines and houses and things to deal with. Is this minute's over between us? Well, not for another 10, 15 minutes at least looking at where we're at, but I wouldn't mind coming down a little and seeing what's happening on the surface. Is and that gully ahead of us a problem? No, no, we're actually over it now, so that's, a problem. No, that's fine, that's fine. You may get some, what'll happen is the winds will come off the plane and then fall down into the gully. So if you can do a good search and make sure there's no power lines, it's sometimes fun to fly along them, but I'm not going to do that today. So uh, the Yu-Yang's poking out of the mist in the distance. Yep. And, uh, Somebody very, else over there around Geelong way, I don't know what's over there. Yeah, um, some of the other hills and mountains and so on. Chasing a big orange balloon. Yeah, Ronald is in flying a 105 with himself and two other passengers. We're in a little 77,000 cubic foot balloon known as a 77. He's in a 105,000 cubic foot. Gives him more lift capability. It feels like your own private Idaho, Grant. I love it. I love it. <laughs> well, there you go, Kathy. Now you get an idea of why I like coming out here and doing this. It makes all those early mornings and scrabbling around to find crew and <laughs> hassling to get an aircraft. And Can you appreciate now why it's so hard to rack up hours? Why it's <laughs> taken me so long? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Dennis said this morning, that's your alarm. And I went, oh, I don't have to get up. <laughs> but I'm so pleased I did. Oh, there I'd, you go. I'll jump out of bed 
lovingly next time. <laughs> well, I'll keep you posted next time we're flying in this area. But for now, I think we should wrap this up. As you can see, we're actually heading off towards the uh, oh, sort of the southeast at the moment. We're, we're <laughs> hanging a big left. So I'm going to take us back up a bit and get us back into that uh, more northeasterly so we can head out to the southwest and get close to the airport. Everything's moving to the right slightly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, you know that bit about uh, keeping a spot in your, in your, as you're coming into in land. You keep it, yeah, yeah, you keep that spot as you're coming in on the runway and, yeah. and aim for it. Yeah, If it goes down... If it goes up, left, well, now we've got left and right thanks to the wind. So, well, thanks for coming along, Kathy. Thanks for having me, Grant. Cool. And uh, we'll edit this one another day and uh, put it in the feed. Okay. Back to flying. Thank you. <laughs> well, there we go. Okay, Kathy, fess up. How is it that you ended up in a hot air balloon over Bacchus Marsh with one Grant McHeron recently? Oh, well, Steve, it, it all happened fairly smoothly, really, because um, Grant just phoned me one night and said, I've got a spot tomorrow. Do you want to come? And did it go something like this? I need a passenger, please. Somebody fly with me, please. No. Hey. No, no. No, there's no begging. I was happy to go. I thought it was a great idea. Couldn't pass up an opportunity to spend an hour and a half in a picnic basket with Grant, could I? Even if it was high above Bacchus Marsh. So I set the alarm for um, what time What time do you call this? Oh, dark 30. Yeah. Stupid o'clock. <laughs> Apologised to my husband for waking him up before dawn on his day off. And so I set off in the family car with little more than a bottle of water and a Granny Smith for brekkie and crept around the streets of Bacchus Marsh looking for strangers in car parks because there's some really dodgy meet-up arrangement details like we'll meet you on the corner of somewhere and somewhere else. And so, uh, It was pretty dang good. It was pretty good, yeah. We gave you a coordinates and told you it was near that store and, you know, Sheesh. I know. So I've arrived at Bacchus Marsh in the dark with my Granny Smith and my bottle of water. Granny Smith being an apple, of course. Yeah. <laughs> I worked it out when I saw a troop carrier with a big laundry basket on the trailer <laughs> in the car park of the coal supermarket. And this guy gets out and he says, are you Kathy Mexted? And I said, no, nah, because you never know who you're going to meet in the car park at Bacchus Marsh at five o'clock on a Sunday morning. <laughs> But it turned out to be Evan Shue. He's our li- one of our listeners, one yes. of your listeners. Yeah, Evan's a great guy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He was a great help. But it was cold, wasn't it, Grant? Oh, it was kind of brisk. Cold. <laughs> well, I'm being polite way of saying it was freezing. <laughs> so we're walking across crunchy ice, Steve. Crunch, crunch, crunch. Oh, that <laughs> was had the snow boots on. That was when we got to the la- launch field. We had yeah. Evan. Evan blew up the balloon and then took the photos. He was big help. So then Grant got out this really big hairdryer and blew up the balloon <laughs> and we jumped in and took the obligatory selfie for Facey. You know <laughs> what that is, Steve? I was yeah, going to explain yeah, that to you. Yes, yes. I'm, I'm very hip with the young folk, Cathy. I know all about that <laughs> stuff. You can inbox me later. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so, but anyway, I was surprised at how quickly it all took to get set up. Like, what was it, Grant? I don't know, 20 minutes or something? Uh, no, we took about uh, from getting there to getting getting up in the air because there was a little bit of repositioning on the field to uh, try and avoid some of the really huge clumps of tundra stuff on the field and uh, then getting it laid out, getting it going. A couple of briefings because the lady I had crewing for me, she hadn't crewed for me before. Get it stood up, sort out a couple of issues. And uh, normally it's about 20 minutes, but for us it was about 30 to 35 minutes. Uh, that's, that's why I was so cold, Steve. Yeah. <laughs> The fact, the fact that everything was covered in frost and, in fact, by the time uh, we'd fa- got the troopy and everything set up, the front bumper bar of the four-wheel drive was coated in snow. 
I'm getting to the front bumper bar. Are you oh. following this, Steve? I am following it, Kathy. Yes, yes. It's a, it, it hasn't so enthused. I, it hasn't uh, you know enthused me to go ballooning as yet. Oh no, no, no. It's good. So, I disagree with the hairdryer, by I, the way. There was absolutely nothing warm about that. <laughs> I thought this was going to be a rapid departure because you know, in aviation, when someone says, "I'll take you for a fly," you line it up, don't you? And then you give it the stick, and off you go. So Grant gave it the stick with the blowtorch thingy. <laughs> and nothing happened because we're still attached to the car. <laughs> hey, I know, I know. That's standard procedure. You get it I hot. Looked, I looked down and I noticed that the car was up on two wheels. Oh. Because <laughs> we're fighting away. So not only did Evan Shoe, God love his soul, turn up in the middle of the night for people that he didn't know, blow up the balloon and take the photos, he then had to pull out his elephant gun and shoot the rope and release us into the ever after, cutting us free of all earthly responsibilities. I and then we're off, weren't we, Grant? Uh, exaggerating just we're- a tad here. <laughs> it was so a knife, best- not an elephant gun, okay? <laughs> <laughs> the best thing about getting airborne was thawing my hands on the Bunsen burner. If I'd known it was going to be such an intimate experience with Grant and I squeezed into a laundry basket, I'd have brought some eggs and cooked us up a feed. I don't mean just hold sausages near the burners. Well, you mean there's, there's, <laughs> you mean there's actually no in-flight catering on this aircraft? There was. Uh, yeah, there I had was. jelly snakes. <laughs> yeah. Lou, Lou gave me some jelly snakes. Okay. Hey, I, I packed jelly snakes. Oh, was it you? Yeah. Oh, I just ne- I need to give you more credit. <laughs> so, Steve, I have to say after the initial excitement, I was rather taken with the whole experience because I think it's the ultimate form of flight. Because there's no noise except for Grant talking. And, and the there's, bird is going on and off during the flight to keep us from crashing. Yeah, but that's kind of like birds tweeting and that's just a natural part of it, isn't it? Well, you know, it's a required part. <laughs> yeah. But it was so slow and perfect and um, still. And so we took off, Steve, but we didn't go anywhere. <laughs> well, hopefully you went up. <laughs> there was no wind. <laughs> We stayed low. We stayed low and used some drainage just uh, moving. You know, we, we went across two fields. I know, we did. We hit a cracking one knot. And so, no, it was It beautiful. still had you freaking about that tree we were going towards at that cracking one or two knots. <laughs> I, was, I was incredibly impressed with the serenity, Steve. I was, I was kind of struck dumb for, for a change. And, um, it was nice and quiet. Now, now, what time, what, now seriously, what, what time did you get up and was it still dark by the time you, uh, you know, became aloft? Oh, yeah. Yeah, this no. all happened at night. We're flying blind. Right. No, we uh, <laughs> the, the, we met at about six thirty a.m. and we were off the off the ground just before eight a.m. The sun was well and truly um, starting its thing. First light had well and truly happened. So we were in the air and uh, got to see the uh, the sun pretty much rising. Uh, but we were in the air just after first light or thereabouts. Okay. All right. So we're in the air, Kathy. Where does it go from there? <laughs> Nowhere slowly. What happens um, after that? <laughs> everything happened really slowly. I was kind of waiting. I was expecting more. I thought that we'd be launched, you know, when they cut the rope, when they Point. cut the car off. I thought we'd kind of, <laughs> but we didn't. We just, you can't see my hand, can you? It's just moving up ever so slowly. We just floated away like a balloon on the wind. And um, I think we were up at about 50 feet and then we levelled off at 50 feet, which would normally give you an aviator palpitations, but... Um, <laughs> And I, I guess it sort of sent me into a bit of a trance-like state. And I said to Grant, oh, 
You can see that gum tree, can't you? You know, because in an aeroplane, if a gum tree is coming at you, it's usually coming at a fair clip. Yes. But this all just happened so slowly, and I thought, surely he'll see that. But he did, and we went over it. But to be so close to the tree and be looking over the edge of the basket down on it as it just slowly disappeared underneath us. And we were over a, um, a field of something, weren't we, Grant? A field Looked of like what? like cabbages Help or lettuces. Lettuce or cabbage or some other vegetation. And, and, and said uh, tree was the only tree in the middle of the paddock and, of course, we immediately start flying towards it. It's one of the rules of ballooning. You can be in a two-kilometre square paddock with only one tree in the middle of it and as soon as you let down to skim along the surface, guess what? The winds shift and you're dragged straight towards the tree. It's a vortex. <laughs> but it was pretty specky. I got some photos of the tree with the lines of um, cauliflower or whatever it was but it's actually really beautiful look flying over these market gardens and there's no um pressure to do anything much well i didn't feel any pressure i don't know about grant <laughs> i think there's a bit of pressure to get up and over the tree but we were above the tree and then we just kind of drifted off steve with no fixed address and um everybody went right and we were going left and then we went up and then we went right and I couldn't work it all out but Grant was actually very good in explaining to me what was happening but I was in sort of in a semi-trance like state you know I just wanted to be still and and absorb you know absorb the experience just take it all in it was absolutely stunning yeah I was really surprised I, I got to um, say, um, some of the photos, some of the photos that you put up, they were they were really, you know, really gave us a great sense of, uh, you know, what you experienced that day. They were fantastic photos, and it uh, it really did look rather peaceful up there, despite the lack of lycoming in the front and wings out either side. <laughs> <laughs> but we had a thing that went. Psh! Oh yeah, I heard yeah. that. I heard that on and the then, interview. And we had another guy ahead of us who knew where the wind was. We just followed him. I mean, Grant knew what he's doing. <laughs> so then we, we we drifted off. I thought we were heading off to Geelong or somewhere, but we actually just went from one side of Backus Marsh to the other. That took us an hour and a half. <laughs> Basically, we uh, yeah we launched just east of Backus and it was a good day that the winds were kind of slow and, and things like that because, uh, yeah, I, I could have taken you up on a day when we had a little bit of wind and then we moved would have moved along quite a lot faster, like about 10 or 12 knots. Oh, and, I imagine uh, that would be quite startling. Yeah, uh, it's a lot of fun. You don't really yeah. notice it until you come into land <laughs> realise, <Yeah>. hey, hey, <laughs> that ground, it's so big, it's so wide, it's so friendly. It's oh fast. <laughs> we planned the flight to be we'd stay down low and make use of the drainage. Basically, by changing your altitude, you can go to different layers. And drainage is, is a general reference to winds that are flowing down off hills, like a catabatic wind. Uh, in this instance, we had some catabatic coming through, dragging us slowly towards the east. So we made use of that to stay down low. And the plan was after having some fun staying down low for a bit, we'd pop up and uh, get into the uh, the nor'easterly that would take us out. And the, the intention was to try and land at Bacchus Marsh Aerodrome. We were sort of going to head that way and see if we could get in there. And, uh, yeah, we, and so we, we were having yeah we were having fun staying low and Ronald went high and started seeing what the winds were doing and they, they seemed to do pretty much what we expected based on the little helium balloon with a light on it that we let go earlier. So we were, we were sort of coming up and that was when I noticed that there were all those horse studs and everything. So you've got to give them at least about 600 feet, minimum 500, preferably higher, to pass over horse horse areas. Um, just, just politeness so that the uh, very expensive four-legged beasties don't freak out and uh, run around and anger the owners, uh, which um, if you're rich enough to own a large horse stud with um, your own private trotting track, then you're probably rich enough to have a whole lot of lawyers ready to go after poor innocent balloonatics who happen to um, inadvertently come a little low. So, yeah, stayed up high, kept riding it out that way. I had uh, Bacchus Marsh in my GPS and could see the track we were getting. And by going up and down 
just a matter of a difference between two or three hundred feet and our track would be going right or left depending on where we're at so just by riding up and down we're sort of corkscrewing our way out towards Bacchus and watching Ronald ahead as he went down uh I I sort of at one point decided to go a little lower and that was when we noticed everything going to the left (laughs) (laughs) or everything going to the right because we were going to the left uh which let me know pretty quickly that as I come down I'm going to track to the left so I knew I wanted to stay up a bit higher and get more of that right to go to the right of the aerodrome so um because I'd come back in and watching ahead I watched Ronald come down and sure enough he did track left there was a bit where he seemed to slow up and then he started tracking to the left and uh, he came in and put it down very nicely in a field not far from the windsock and some of the hangars and then nuff nuff here that would be me I came over and thought oh this isn't too bad a spot started a gentle descent came in but uh, there was a whole lot of nothing the the wind was quite still um, a very still inversion layer then came down below that and was in totally the wrong spot The, the winds down low were actually taking me towards the north more than anything so that was uh, that was when we decided it was a bit of a bad bad approach angle wasn't it Kathy? Oh look it all looked pretty good to me Grant we just went round and a couple of times didn't we actually? Yeah well we that came down and waved at the cow and yeah. you know there was a cow <laughs> in a field near the airport just standing there going okay. The cow, <laughs> the cow looked up and watched us go by and then we came round again and watched us go by again and then we came round again around the other side of it but yeah. the cow's feet didn't move just its head it just looked <laughs> yeah. around as if to say what are you doing? You know, <laughs> exactly. But, but I was thrilled because, um, you know, I've never done circuits in a balloon, touches and goes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it was the joys of the winds at, at, down at the lower level going yeah. quite a different direction. So when I realised it was a bad angle and I wasn't going to make the field that I wanted, I just went back up and rode those winds that I knew were there. And I was making CTAF calls and I was letting people on the frequency know that my balloon would not be going south of the gable markers and would not be infringing into the uh, into the main runway they all seemed to be using. And two aircraft took off during this time. And I did have uh, on the second circuit as I was coming in, I thought I found some wind that was going to take me the direction that I wanted, but no, I was already through it and I was going more to the left. And I got myself behind trying to overanalyze and figure out what to do. And then suddenly realized, oh, I'm in quite a descent here <laughs> after I broke out of the bottom of the inversion. Isn't that when we decided to have a, a jelly snake and a bit of a think? Uh, that was Remember after the touch and go. <laughs> yeah. um, so I, like, it can happen that uh, if you descend into colder air, suddenly your balloon is more buoyant and you either have to vent to maintain your descent rate or wait for it to level out. And a lot of that happened um, on another flight I just did last weekend, uh, descending into the cold and you think, oh, wow, we're going to come down, we're going to hit the ground or we're going to not round out in time and those trees are getting closer. And sure enough, it's really cold. The balloon slowly rounds up and next thing you know, you're either going back up again or traveling along level and clearing everything quite nicely. Well, in this case, with Kathy and I coming down, um, came out of the inversion and because I got myself distracted, I didn't put enough heat in to round out or anything like that. And I realized, well, we're going down quite quickly. So I put a whole lot of heat in and it wasn't doing anything. So I, I told Kathy, oh, we're going to have a little bit of a thump here. I turned brace, off. Brace, <laughs> brace, brace, brace. <laughs> I'd already, I'd already worked it through the uh, landing positions before we even took off. And so I as we're coming through, I had her in that position already, uh, which is not curled up in a ball, crying to God or anything Screaming. like that. <laughs> it's it's knees slightly bent, um, leaning back into some padding um, and holding onto a couple of handles, uh, rope handles inside. So you're quite secure. And I told her, oh, hang on, this could be, a, you know, could have a little bit of a thump here. And so I turned off the pilot lights to make sure that there was no flame. So if anything does go wrong, you don't wind up with a jet of flame going everywhere or things like that or accidentally burn your balloon or yourselves. It was a reasonably positive touchdown, wasn't it? It was fine. 
I mean, I've done harder touchdowns while trying to learn to land a Cessna 152. Let's put it that way. So yeah, that's touched, what I mean. It was just yeah. just a bit of a boing. Yeah, it was boing. sort of like, oh, look, there's the ground. Will it be friends with us? <laughs> boing. Oh, I guess not. And because I'd put so much heat in and I didn't bother venting or anything like that, we actually, by then the balloon had caught up with itself and we were quite buoyant and up we went again. Off uh, into the ether. Yeah, at which point I turned on the I turned on the pilot lights, started the burners back up, put some heat back in, went back up again because I knew what the winds would be doing above me. And we went back up. That was where we had the snake and a bit of a collective. Well, that was fun, wasn't it? <laughs> Ate some sugar effectively with these jelly snake things. And um, yeah, We're getting calls from together. the ground by then too, weren't we? Yeah, um, my, Ronald was inquiries, like oh. inquiries. Yeah, Ronald was like, hey, going up there. And I was like, oh, it's not a, good, long. <laughs> yeah, not a good angle. Are you going to have you long? Oh, no, I'll just do this one last one and we'll make it so. And sure enough, we come down and, and this time I nailed it. Absolutely nailed Perfect. it. Yeah, we came in right on the right angle and we'd been pl- flying a hare and hound, which is where one balloon takes off well ahead of the other. And the other balloons try to land, either overfly and drop a marker or land right beside the hound. Sorry, the hare rather. So I was the hound and it took me three goes, but I actually landed closer to Ronald than I had been when I took off. So I think on that, allowing for three goes, I think I did pretty well on that. And yeah, we came in, skimmed over the field and- Missed the cow. Oh yeah, the cow was ages back. Um, uh, yeah, cow was happy and came in over the uh, the cross runway and and skimmed along the grass past the uh, windsock and landed nicely and had a nice little landing. The, my crew were there. They uh, once I'd stabilised everything, they grabbed the crown line, helped tip over the envelope, pull it down. Um, I vented to let all the air out. And uh, once I knew it was all okay, got Kathy out, got myself out. The crew were looking after it. So I went over to where Ronald was and um, Peter Dow. We've had him on the show before, um, the chief flying instructor of TVSA, who happened to be based at Bacchus, is over um, saying to Ronald, how long is this idiot going to be in the air, um, you know, blocking my airspace? And, of course, I come along. He just starts laughing and goes, well, you know, obviously he understood now who the idiot was. <laughs> and um, we had a good chat. It was great. Caught up with him and uh, then we, uh, he left and we packed everything away and that was it. And, uh, Evan, appear- Evan appeared and packed up the balloon for us. Well, actually, yeah. Took some more photos. Yeah, Evan actually took some nice video of that landing, Grant. I've, I've got to actually uh, get the soundtrack prepared for that. <laughs> Is that oh, the best skill one? Yes. Terrain, terrain, photo- pull up, pull up. <laughs> so, so Kathy, in summary, um, you would do it again, obviously. I think you've obviously been sold on the idea of balloon flight. I'd definitely go up. I really love the idea of being in the little basket with Grant. Like, I like the idea of the little balloon because it's just the two of you and you know, and there's champagne and cows and things to look at. No, seriously. I, I really love the little balloon because um, it was such an intimate experience in that you're not in there with 20 people. Does that make sense? Something that, like just the weekend just passed, I did a check flight in a 105. In fact, in the balloon that Ronald was flying on the day that you came out with us, I'm now yeah. checked out to fly that. And I can fly that with uh, two passengers. That's that, the size of the basket and that one is, is quite comfortable with two. It was just so peaceful and it was, still yeah. Beautiful. It really was beautiful, which is why I might not have made sense when you we were doing that interview because I really was half asleep. I was entranced, you know, <laughs> entranced by the thing. And um, I think you'll love it, Steve. Now, now, do you get think, out there. now, do you think get it would create there. enough lift to get somebody that's, you know, slightly heftier than your good self, Kathy, you know? Cause, yeah, yeah. Because I am, I am Look, you know, I'm only not a slight little stature. thing, but I'm sure a bit of extra gas. <laughs> no, let's, let's, let's face facts, Steve. I'm going to fly you in the 105. Oh, okay. <laughs> No, no problem, mate. I've been squeezed into a studio with you, Grant, and that's close enough. <laughs> uh, the, 105, the 105 will have heaps of uh, spare lift to make it nice and comfortable for us. Yeah. Maybe you will have to chuck out the gas bottle then, Grant. Mm. 
Well, I tell you, one of these days I've got to get up there. In fact, um, as my daughter keeps reminding me, we did promise her a balloon flight for her 16th birthday. And, uh, well, actually, she just turned 18 last weekend. So Yeah, I didn't find it frightening at all. Well, sounds fantastic, guys. I guess one of these days I'll have to get up in a hot air balloon. One of these days I will. Well, one one of the things I've really got to say is major thanks to Evan. He came along just to check it out and wound up helping out by, uh, he was one of the folks holding the mouth of the balloon open to get some, help me get some air into it, uh, blowing it into the (laughs) Fan. Did you give it mouth to mouth? Yeah, it's so on. Sure. <laughs> Sounds like hard CPR. work. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and then also, if if that wasn't enough, you know, tagged along on the ground and was there to help pack up and really enjoyed himself so much so that the next weekend when I went out and flew again at Riddles Creek, um, he came along as well. And uh, we also had uh, Dan Pearson come out, and the two of them uh, bopped along in Dan's car, and uh, my crew gave them a spare radio, and they were quite helpful in terms of locating an access point and in fact a landowner who could help us out with where we landed not far from Lancefield. So took off at Riddles Creek, flew low out in, towards the northeast, uh, went high to get some direction after we cleared the uh, two and a half thousand foot step and headed more up north and wound up up near Lancefield. It was absolutely brilliant. Is Evan going to go and do balloon lessons? Him and Steve I- might be able to get a double deal. <laughs> I, I, I don't know if he's going to do lessons, but I think he's going to be my next passenger if I'm able to fly in an area near him yeah. because uh, he's he's certainly earned it coming along and helping out a couple of times. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, well, just yeah. by taking that video of the landing actually was enough for me. I think you should give him a free flight. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I figured that would make you feel happy. <laughs> when do you go flying next, Steve? You've been out and about, haven't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Probably in another couple of weeks, I think. Fingers crossed, hopefully. N- perfect landing every time. Absolutely. No. As far as you know, Kathy. No bumps and circuits and bumps? No, no. I, I tend to pin it to the ground, actually. It's, it's rather tragic, actually. <laughs> Positive return to earth. I, I think I think I need to buy Laurie a slab of beer and get the inside dirt. <laughs> yes, Laurie will tell you nothing. We're tra- Forget about we're brothers. We'll just come out with the video. We'll just send Evan. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Evan's our man, Steve. Yeah, Evan, yes. <laughs> He's our man on the ground. Don't bother, Evan. I'll never tell you when I'm flying, that's all. Well, that's, uh, that's a great uh, chat about ballooning, but we need to move on because we're running out of our allotted time here. So let's move on to our uh, 50 Tales of Flight giveaway, thanks to our good friend Owen's Up. Now, uh, everybody should remember back to the last episode when Owen uh, posed this question. Which Australian solo pioneer aviator hails from the same town as Jabiru Aircraft? Okay, now, do you know the answer to that, Cathy? Yes. Yes, well, okay. What's the answer? (laughs) Turn the microphone off and tell me so I can get the book. Oh, come on. Oh, come on. Well, I've got the answer here, so let's have a listen. Bert Hinkler. Bert Hinkler. Well done, Kathy. but you're too late for that one to uh, get your free copy of the uh, 50 Tales of Flight giveaway. But uh, well, the first let's people... Let's do another one. Yeah, well, we're going to do one in a minute, but uh, we're going to just go to announce the the lucky winners from the last one, and that was, of course, Brad Rule, Mitchell Royal, Lara Worry, Will Coleman, Gary Clarkson, Trent Stewart, Darren Eastwood, and Graham Slingsby. So congratulations to all of you, and uh, you should by now have received an email from Owen uh, with your code to uh, download your free. free copy of the 50 Tales of Flight ebook. And uh, so now we're all away. Uh, the next question and we've got five more to give away and actually Owen was quite generous to give away a few more than five so we'll see how we go this time are we ready let's have the next question which two other famous knighted Australian aviators share a link with Murchison Station in Western Australia 
Okay, Grant. Now you said last. Uh, you know, you said in the last episode that the answer was easy, easy. Now I don't know the answer to this one. Well, actually, yeah, I do no, know you the, stumped me on that one. I do know the I, answer I, because I've got it pre-recorded here, but I'm not going to play it now. Now, uh, of course, uh, any of you who are wondering about these cryptic questions, uh, just go back through Owen's website at owensup.com or thereandback.com.au, and uh, you should be able to find all the references you need there. Owen uh, has referenced these quite deliberately back to his writings over the last couple of years. So we'll just play that question one more time. Which two other famous knighted Australian aviators share a link with Murchison Station in Western Australia. Okay, contact at plainecrazydownunder.com. Now, uh, as uh, once again, we're not going to be drawing names out of a hat. It's the uh, the first five correct entries, maybe five, maybe six, maybe seven, depends on how generous Owen is feeling, but definitely the first five correct entries to uh, contact at plainecrazydownunder.com and perhaps just in the subject there, just put something like 50 tails competition or Owen's up competition and uh, we'll be able to uh, announce the winners of that in the next episode. I think, Grant, it took about maybe 48 hours for all of those to go, no more than that. I've got it, it. I've got it. (laughs) Okay, well, don't tell anyone, Kathy. It's a big secret. That one's uh, a little bit more challenging. Uh, How many of our famous early aviators were actually knighted? And I think I know the story he's referring to with the Murchison Station, but uh, I would definitely have to go and do some research on that one. That one's not leaping to mind as quickly as the first one did. Absolutely. Now, we need to give these books uh, given away soon because Owen is, I think, very soon releasing a Another ebook. He's fairly prolific, isn't he? Yes, in fact, Owen is uh, enjoying his writing so much. I think it's probably we can probably uh, say here that uh, he's not doing as much flying for that airline he flies for these days. In fact, uh, <laughs> as far as I know, he's just doing part-time work with those guys now and devoting a lot more time to his writing, which is uh, great for all of us because Owen uh, not only writes books and all that sort of stuff, but he's also the technical editor for Australian Aviation Magazine. So uh, the more fantastic articles he can put in magazines like that, the better off we all are, I say. Well, I think, I think it's quite interesting that uh, right from the start, the first time we had Owen, on the show, we had a giveaway of a hardcover copy of his Down to Earth book. Okay, moving on from competitions and moving up to mail. I can hear the poster coming. Here he is. Oh. Uh, yes, the most enduring sound effect here we've ever had here on PCDU. I may have mentioned that in the last episode. Have I ever had a letter, Steve? Yeah, well, you, yes, we've sent yes. you one letters before, Kathy. Yes, the, the, the letter of uh, you're fired. No, um, <laughs> you've received the, a couple of emails from our audience saying how good it was to have you on the show and things like that. So you, know, you can you can tell your family to stop writing. It was, we've got the I message. Want, I want a postcard from somewhere. Do okay, okay hey, folks, there's anymore? the challenge. There's the challenge. Find a postcard that you can send into us. Well, you can. And send us snail mail. In fact, uh, if you'd ever like to do that, our address is Post Office Box 70, Cranbourne, Victoria, Australia, 3977. Send Kathy a postcard. <laughs> and it's actually, it's on our contact page on the on the website. So, yep. Absolutely. And we'd like to encourage all of our listeners to uh, write in and send Kathy an email. Contact at plaincrazydownunder.com and we'll certainly pass it on to Kathy. Indeed. And then keep she it can, nice, though. Uh, keep it nice. And then Kathy can read the listener mail segment. We can pre-record it. Uh, hey, less work for us. Okay. More chance of an episode getting out faster. <laughs> uh, this one comes in from our good friend Soapy HB, Chris Howard Bath, up there at uh, Melbourne Centre, and uh, great to see that he's uh, taking some time away from air traffic control to write us uh, some nice letters. Chris wrote in to uh, tell us some information about the Concorde, and that's all fantastic. Thanks for that, mate. And he goes on to say, by the way, he thought our coverage of Avalon 2013 was excellent. He enjoyed every episode, although he must say he's a real fan of the view from the lounge. Loves it. Well, Crocky, don't tell Anthony Simmons that. Yeah. Oh, no, it's, it's, he's enough of a trouble as it is. 
<laughs> anyway, he goes on to say here, just in closing, excellent work, guys. He said, I have no idea how you do it and stay married. Neither do we, actually, uh, Sophie. Yeah. So. Yeah, funny you should mention that. Uh, it's, it's in the interest of that that, um, mm, yes, production has slowed down a little. But anyhow. Mm, hey, I'll tell you what, Soap, you must be getting, uh, you must be, uh, getting a bit lax there in Santa Mate. ATC Ben and I flew right through your airspace the other day. I'm reliably informed and you didn't even ping us, picking up all my terrible rusty IFR radio calls. How embarrassing. I think he was probably too busy trying to divert others away from you. If he was listening to me on the radio, uh, he's probably too busy laughing. (laughs) Yeah, that too. Oh, dear. Very, very rusty. Okay, our next one here comes from a colleague of mine, Justin Sarda. Justin's just sent us in there a uh, a link to some uh, fantastic uh, airliner photography, some uh, cockpit uh, photos, which I'm always a sucker for. So, Grant, we might put a link to that in the show notes. uh, Oh, definitely. Well, enjoy those. Um, always, uh, always great to see some of those uh, fantastic uh, shots. And you know, I may have mentioned recently in a podcast that I'm a real sucker for uh, YouTube cockpit videos. I love that sort of stuff. Makes it very hard to get editing done if I just happen to get distracted by YouTube. Okay, Grant, if you got some listener mail there. I certainly do have another one, mate. And this one's from our mate Mick Bomb One, and uh, he points out that in a previous life he was a spinal technician, and uh, he notes that. Uh, Lap band seat belts, as we find in aircraft, in a serious accident will apparently cripple you. Uh, scientific fact, and there's plenty of stats to prove it, as per the old day when uh, you, all you had were your lap band seat belts in a car. There's a reason why they bought those uh, sash ones that go over your shoulder, uh, so that you actually could survive more crashes and so on. I guess this is why the uh, brace position has been bought in, because it uh, helps give you a bit more protection than just that lap band belt on the aircraft. Yeah, well, actually, uh, you know, our good friend uh, Mick from the Frankston line, he, he could probably uh, practice that crash position more often if uh, some of my trainees are driving. You never know. Yeah. Well, yeah, it could be uh, quite interesting depending on where he's at. One of these days we're going to meet Mick from the Frankston line. You know, I spend a lot of time on that line. I've never met Mick. He might be uh, sub- trying to survive my driving from, uh, you know, three or four carriages back. And I would well, never know. Uh, look, I'm pretty sure we're going to have a moment to uh, catch up with him in the near future. But we'll be able to talk about that in a not too distant episode, I suspect. But meanwhile, the next one we've got, mate, is from Brian Grinter, who sent through a link from the Dam Busters blog, uh, which shows a picture of Peter Jackson being interviewed in a hangar with the full-scale replica of the Lancaster parked behind him. Pretty impressive, isn't it? Uh, it's very impressive, and I like the comment there that uh, Brian put on there uh, where he says, not your average airfix kit. So uh, <laughs> that's the biggest <laughs> yeah. airfix kit I've ever seen, if that is the case. But, uh, yeah, that, that's impressive. I'll look forward to seeing that movie. I can still remember the uh, the original Dan Busters movie, so, uh, and that was done a long time ago, a black-and-white movie, if memory serves. Thanks, everybody, for writing in. There's been a lot of email come in. Obviously, it's been so long since the last episode that the, uh, the listener mails uh, have been stacking up a bit, so we may have to save a few of those until the next episode. But... Uh, we always try and make sure that we uh, reply to them even if we don't read them out on the show and we really do appreciate it. Contact at plainecrazydownunder.com. Please send us an email anytime, story suggestions or anything like that. And of course, we always want to see more email for Kathy Mexted because, you know, you might come up with a story idea for Kathy. We've got her up in a hot air balloon. We've had her up in a Nanchen. Kathy, what can we send you up in next? Helicopter. A helicopter. Okay. All right. So we're looking for a helicopter ride for Kathy. Seriously. <laughs> She'll be That'd very be great. happy. Yeah. Helicopter. Yep, absolutely. Hey, um, did you know that Cole Griffin passed away? No, I did not know that. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, you mentioned it to me the other day. When I was at, sitting at my dad's wake having my 15th glass of wine, um, yeah, he passed away about three weeks ago and they had a really lovely um, memorial for him at the Kite Aerodrome where his very good friend Warren Canning got up and gave a very emotional speech 
Um, they played some footage of coal ta- uh, that was put on Sunrise, I think around the time of the 100th anniversary of flight. And yeah, it was lovely. A lot of people there. He was very much loved around the Kyneton Airport, that's for sure. Well, we had the pleasure of interviewing him a couple of years ago, Grant. Uh, I can't remember the episode right off the top of my head, but we'll put a link in the show notes there to the interview with uh, Cole Griffin and Warren Canning. He was a very, very entertaining uh, character from the one time that I met him. Yeah. I also did a couple of magazine stories on him. One was in Outback Magazine. It was just a general feature on him, the fact that he's still flying at 90. And the other one was in Flight Path Magazine. And if you Google him, it'll come up. The full story comes up about his wartime experience. Oh, that's a shame. Oh, well, I'll tell you what, uh, he was flying right up until his 90s, then uh, he was doing what he loved, and uh, that was uh, uh, sad to see him go, but a good innings, as they say. Yeah, yeah, he had a good crack at it. Well, that leads us into uh, shout-outs on that rather sombre note, but, uh, you know, uh, Cole Griffin was a rather uh, elderly uh, aviator, but uh, now we're going to concentrate on somebody else right at the other end of the scale, and that's young Ryan Campbell, who we've been supporting uh, thanks to the generosity of uh, many of our listeners. We uh, were very happy to be able to send uh, $550 towards the teen world flight effort, and uh, as we record this, uh, Ryan Campbell has uh, departed from Wollongong. He's kicked off the flight, and uh, he's made it uh, across on the first leg over to Norfolk Island, and... Uh, then he'll be making a couple of hops across the Pacific before he gets into the United States. Then he'll be going across to Europe and then back down through Asia before getting to Australia. Now, for our listeners who are going to be over in the States at AirVenture, Ryan will be there at AirVenture. He'll be spending the week there, and uh, at least on one of those days, we think the aircraft will be uh, featured in the centre square there, which at one point was known as AeroShell Square. I'm not sure what they're calling it this year. Conoco Phillips Plaza again, perhaps. Yep, Okay. so for those of you who are not familiar, he is flying a Cirrus SR-20. 22. Oscar Lima Sierra VHOLS is the registration of that aircraft and of course you won't miss it because it's got uh, it's basically adorned in many many sponsors uh, logos so we'll make sure you get out there now uh, of course a young American lad has uh, just recently set the record for being the youngest person to fly solo around the world that's Jack uh, Wiegand uh, of course he has um, completed that flight but he's 20 years old and Ryan Campbell is 19 so uh, provided he gets through this trip successfully then uh, he's going to be able to uh, hold that record indeed we're certainly hoping that uh, he successfully completes his trip, not just for the record factor, but uh, he's set himself a goal. He's planned. He spent a lot of time getting it together. He got his license when he was 15. It's been a lot of time in the making this this trip, and uh, we're certainly wishing him all the luck. And you can follow him on his website. He's got live tracking at uh, teenworldflight.com, and he's also Teen World Flight on Twitter. So uh, let's make sure that we uh, follow him and give him all the support. And uh, he's going to be doing some fantastic things when he gets back with regards to being a youth ambassador and uh, you know, playing his his part in, uh, you know, encouraging more young people to consider aviation as a career in all its many facets. Now, one more shout out that I wanted to give here just as we uh, come towards the end of the program was to our uh, friends over there on Facebook at the Aussie Aviators and Friends page. Those guys have been uh, really good in plugging our show lately and reposting a lot of our posts. So uh, shout out to Troy and the guys there. Thanks very much, guys. Much appreciated. And uh, a great uh, little uh, online community there for uh, anyone who's interested in uh, local happenings. Uh, there's lots of videos on there, lots of photos. So uh, Aussie Aviators and Friends on Facebook. Now, I wanted to mention here, folks, uh, an issue that's been coming up of late, and we've been getting uh, a lot of mail from various and sundry uh, RAOs participants, people that own aircraft. Uh, we know that there's a lot of trouble going on in the RAOs community at the moment with regard to your organisation, Recreational Aviation Australia. Now, Grant and I are not participants in that sector. You know, if you've listened to this program for a long time, that we are quite enthusiastic supporters of it. Uh, we think it's a fantastic sector, but uh, I don't think it would be a surprise to anybody who knows anything about that sector 
sector right now here in Australia to uh, know that uh, it's under quite some threat. CASA is looking at it. They're quite concerned about it as well. There seems to be uh, a lot of warring factions going on and uh, we've been thinking about how we might be able to uh, present some uh, solutions to this and uh, the bottom line is that we don't know. So we're looking for ideas. We'd like uh, for people to write in and and suggest uh, some people that they might like us to interview. I'm quite prepared to uh, devote an entire episode to the issue of RAOs. If uh, some of the various uh, interested parties from around Australia would like to come on, pitch some ideas for uh, how they think this organisation might best be served in order that, uh, quite frankly, it survives. Now, I will say here that uh, we do get a lot of people writing in saying, yes, we've got this idea, but don't talk to that person or don't talk to this person. Please don't write in and say stuff like that. I get enough of that email already. But if you would like to uh, write in with some some positive ideas, what can we do to save RAOs? Because uh, I tell you what, Grant, I don't know what you think, but the way I've been reading it, it's under quite some threat as an organisation. And uh, I think if it went away, it probably would not be a good thing. It's certainly under a lot of duress. And uh, I think the main reason it came about was because people wanted a way to fly that didn't involve the bureaucracy of the standard GA world. There's a lot, a lot of paperwork, rules, legislation and bureaucracy involved in GA level flying and the sport pilot RAOs world uh, gets away without needing that. Now, unfortunately, uh, it, it is looking like things are shaky and in trouble. I don't think it's the end, but uh, I agree we should do an episode on it and get people with various points of view and good background in the, uh, the organisation who are able to uh, let us know what's uh, what they believe is happening. And once again, we can present a number of backgrounds, information, potential solutions, and let the audience make up their own mind. So once again, uh, we just want to do our bit to help folks. Contact at plainecrazydownunder.com and uh, any ideas that you can come up with for some sort of open forum, perhaps, whatever you think might be a good thing. We just want to see uh, these troubles end. And if we can uh, do our little bit to help, then uh, we'd be pretty happy with that. Now, Grant, as we wrap the episode up here, let's uh, tell people about our new radio show. Yeah, that's right, Steve. We are now appearing on uh, King Lake Rangers Radio. You can uh, hear us. That's 94.5 FM here in the Melbourne area. But, of course, if you can't receive that radio station because you're outside the broadcast range, you can always go to their website, and it'll be in the show notes, but just do a Google search on King Lake Rangers Radio. You go to their website, and you can go and listen to their live stream. And apparently they also appear on the Tune in application for your iThing. They absolutely do on your iThing and I think you can get TuneIn on uh, in the Android world as well. You actually, you can go to the TuneIn website and stream it through there. So the uh, Playing Crazy Down Under radio show a bit of an experiment that we've been working on which is one of the reasons the podcast has been a little bit delayed <laughs> lately. The idea of that is to uh, try and get this show released in a slightly different format. Just in the, uh, the first uh, initial versions of that we're sticking together various interviews that we've done over the last uh, four and a half years and uh, trying to make a radio show out of that. So it's a bit of an experiment. We're pretty happy with the way it's going now and our plan is world domination but uh, in lieu of that uh, we'd like to see that show uh, being uh, broadcast on uh, a few more community radio stations around the place. So uh, if you're a listener to community radio well uh, let us know about your local station and we might see if we can't uh, try and twist their arms to play our radio show on there. Yeah today King Lake tomorrow the world. Absolutely. But yes apologies folks the uh, radio show is delaying the episodes of the uh, podcast a tad but one day we'll figure it all out and uh, we'll get it 
it streamlined and it'll make things a little easier to uh, release in both worlds. So that uh, brings us towards the end of this episode. Now, Kathy, uh, before we wrap up, what projects have we got on writing-wise besides writing some fantastic articles about my wife's cooking? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. We did. That came out today. Featuring your outstanding photography, Steve. My outstanding photography from my uh, from my iPad, yes. I tell you what, my wife is a sensational cook, but she doesn't like having her photo taken, Kathy. but I did my best. Yeah, you did a good job. What is the name of that magazine? It's uh, Town and Country Farmer, is that right? That's right. Okay, so there I expect every PCDU listener to get out there and buy at least two copies of Town and Country Farmer magazine with Kathy <laughs> Fisher uh, featured in there. And then write to the editor and say... Say, what a fantastic <laughs> what a article that Kathy Give her a pay rise. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Have you been doing any more $100 hamburger uh, flying stories? I think you had one published at the start of the year, if memory serves. Um, I do about one story a week. That's my aim. Oh, I've just finished a story on aerial agriculture in Australia for Australian pilot. I don't know if Cresha will mind if I let that out of the hat. And I've done a few um, profiles and I've been writing for a couple of farming magazines. I've done a story on farm stays. I've got a great farm stay that you can fly into up near Hay called Carinia Station between Carathool and Hay. Um, you know, I just write all the time. Oh, that's fantastic. And if people would like to find out more about you, Kathy, they can go to your website, which is kathymexted.com.au. And where can they find you on Twitter? Because you're very prolific there on Twitter. <laughs> Carscribe, K-A-S-C-R-I-B-E. So that's everything we have for you on this episode of Playing Crazy Down Under. Thanks very much for listening, folks. As always, we hope you enjoyed it. Thanks very much to Cresha Ballantyne for uh, coming and joining us on the show. Thanks also to Micah Lee for that fantastic report from Echuca. And uh, Grant, I tell you what, uh, it's great to be getting uh, people coming on the show and uh, putting together uh, packages like that for us. Yeah, well, it's less editing and uh, easy to slot in, isn't it? <laughs> Absolutely. Thanks also, Kathy Mexted, for joining us. Kathy, we'll catch up with you again the next time. Thanks, guys. It's been an absolute pleasure. Cool. I'll uh, report in after the helicopter ride. Eh? Yes. Yeah, that's the one. And let us know how many postcards you get. Okay. And thanks again, Grant, for the balloon flight. It was wonderful. Hey, no worries. Glad you enjoyed it. Au revoir. We'll be back soon with another episode of Playing Crazy Down Under, folks. I promise it won't be a month and a half until the next show. Really, I promise. We'll see you next time. But until then, when you're flying around, perhaps in a balloon with Grant somewhere, just remember this. It's what's down under that counts, folks. You've been listening to Plane Crazy Down Under, hosted by Steve Vischer, Grant McKerran and Cathy Mexted. You can follow us on Twitter, at PCDU. And for more information about the team, feedback, storylines you'd like us to follow, and any advertising inquiries, go to our website, planecrazydownunder.com. Plane Crazy Down Under is a Southern Skies online media production. Kind folks at the Department of the Bleeding Obvious have asked us to make this statement. The views and opinions we present in this podcast are ours and do not necessarily represent those of groups we work with or are associated with, although we think they probably should. We certainly don't claim to be experts, we're just opinionated enthusiasts who are willing to comment publicly on the world around us. This show is intended as entertainment and any education that may occur is purely coincidental. As with anything in life, it is your responsibility to determine what does or does not work in your situation and to seek out suitable guidance and or instruction. This podcast is released under a Creative Commons non-commercial by attribution license. For more details on this license and our contact details, please visit our website at www.playingcrazydownunder.com. Thanks, folks. If she keeps this up, she's going to turn into the Swedish chef. Here I was thinking there wasn't going to be many outtakes in this episode. No, no bloopers here, mate. No bloopers here.
I'm quite sober. I'm, I'm well under 0.05. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I better go and get a drink. <laughs> I feel like I really, I can't believe I'm doing this sober. I must be insane. Oh, well. Now, now, I, sh- now I should warn you, Kresha, that I record everything. So, <laughs> <laughs> But you edit it, most of it out, right? <clears throat> oh, yes, yes. But I, I, for- I, I, may, I may create a blooper reel. I, I think I've done that <laughs> once or twice. Oh, yeah. dear. Yeah, it was a fairly solitary, lonely, isolating experience. No, it, I love the fact that there was just... Sounds bloody miserable to me. And we're just drifting around, like flying around. And, and I've got to say it was, it was time well spent because I got to uh, give Kathy two experiences in the air that she's never had before. And oh. one was we actually flew <laughs> slower than she My yeah, goodness. Well. So what, to speak. What else did you two get up to up there? I'm not sure. Wow. I must have missed it. Jeez. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You guys okay. sound all crackly and broken up. Oh, you oh, sound God. really clear, Kathy, to me. Oh, good. That's all that matters then. As long as, <laughs> as, it's long coming... as I can be heard, I don't care what the rest of you say. <laughs> <laughs> hey, uh, quick question just off the record. Are you mixing something there? Uh, no, that's not me making a gin and tonic, no. <laughs> I know, it is just coming through. <laughs> Have you found your buttons? Oh, yes, I'm just waiting for you guys. Oh, no, we're ready. Just tell us to shut up. Shut up, Shut up. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. And so I figured, Steve, if you could do it, then I could do it too. How did you enjoy your balloon flight, Steve? I wouldn't know. I've never been in one. Oh, <laughs> didn't really? tell you that bit, did I? How do you explain uh, that to Grant then? I'd, I'd, <laughs> okay. So I set the alarm for... Um... Bevan from Avplan flies a Bonanza too. I don't know if you've interviewed Bevan from Avplan. You interviewed yeah. him. He sponsors us. What a great guy. Oh, God, yeah. he's amazing, isn't he? He's a top We love Bevan. Evan. <laughs> well, there should be more Evans in the world. There should indeed. <laughs> Yes, we, we've got all the, we've got all the um, electronic flight bag people advertising with us. They're all great people. They're all fabulous people. Fabulous. And Rowan and Baz are great too. Oh, not that Baz guy. He's a bit shady, but all the rest <laughs> of them are good. Hi, Baz. Um, yeah, just, I'm still not using an iPad in the balloon yet. <laughs> That's one to me, and twice a week for twenty years to him. <laughs> You're never going to live that one down, Dennis. I can tell you. <laughs> he's not here. I can say what I want. I might need to go on Steve's other jet wing. <laughs> yeah, we can balance it out, you reckon? Yeah, I reckon. <laughs> I'll be knocking on the cockpit and let me in. <laughs> so, so Kathy, Here's this... cargo. you'd be looking in the cockpit and looking at me saying, how the hell did he get in there so quick? <laughs> we're going to go for the wrap-up here because we're, we're sort of notching up to the hour mark. So, Kathy, did you have any other questions? No. <laughs> oh, okay, then. <laughs> Fine. Be that way. That, Kathy. Now, Grant, yeah. we've we've never actually discussed this on the program before, Grant, as far as I can remember. But uh, oh, just, is this a good time to bring it up then? <laughs> yes, yes, about that operation. Um, <laughs> tell <laughs> terribly hard. Yeah, well, I'm not sober. used <laughs> staying sober, and I'm I'm used to doing the interviewing. I, I'm yeah. not prepared to talk about myself at all. That was really challenging. We're That's just getting you back for Avalon when you interviewed exactly. us. <laughs> exactly, Benjamin for Avalon. Train, train, pull up, pull up. Am I in the shot choking on a steak? I'm a a juice. So to speak, so to speak. Bloody hell. First a a good thumping and now now Please take that bit out. I can just hear Tupper going, so to speak. (laughs) 
God. Oh, don't worry, this is the most uh, blooper-free recording we've ever done.